Welcome into another episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast, episode 10 of season 5, recording here on a Wednesday evening in College Station, Texas. I am your host, Tyler Dupnik, pleased to be joined once again, and as always, by my co-host and twin brother, Austin Dupnik. Austin, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing wonderful, Tyler. Happy to be here with you once again here on this Wednesday evening and excited to talk about all the content we have on this episode. Not as much this time because we don't have anything to talk about in the NFL, but that's a good thing, I think, for us and for our listeners. And I'm so excited to talk about all the content that we do have on this episode. And how are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. You know, it's been a uh, you know pretty good week so far, halfway through, and uh, looking forward to getting this episode out there. It's going to be a shorter episode uh, than the past few because we have no football content to discuss, which is a good thing because we've kind of that's all run its natural course for the moment, and so uh, we have just you know kind of the you know just take out the football and everything else is pretty normal routine here. So uh, we'll go and get into it. But before we do that, thanks for listening. As always, you can subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever else uh, you guys listen to our podcast. I really appreciate it if you would do that if you haven't already, and you can follow us as always on social media and you can find me on instagram and twitter at tdupe25 yeah and as always you can follow me on twitter at dupe underscore austin and on instagram at au underscore dupe 10 so if you guys don't follow me on those handles and if you don't follow tyler on his handles and certainly please follow us there because again we always post on those handles whenever the podcast is up and ready to be listened to and if there's any other things that we need to put out there regarding the podcast that's where it's going to be so if you don't follow us on those handles yet please do Absolutely. All right, we'll go ahead and get started with the NBA as always here as we are again. Uh, we talked about last week in the Western Conference Finals and the Eastern Conference Finals um, in the NBA playoffs. So getting closer to the, you know, the final series, obviously, of the season with the NBA Finals, which next week we'll be able to preview that because by the time we record next week, uh, these two series will be over. And so we got into this last week and uh, we've had, you know, this is a good day for us to record because uh, game five between the Heat and the Celtics is happening tonight. They're tied at two in the series. Um, but, you know, we're not obviously going to be able to talk about that game because it hasn't happened yet so uh, we're you know recording right here in the middle of the week which is good we get to talk about the first four games in each series so far and I'll let you get it started in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, I'll get us started. As we know, last week we were able to recap all of the semifinal matchups, and then I think when we recorded last week, the first game of the Eastern Conference Finals was happening at the time, and so we have not touched on any of the Conference Finals games yet, uh, which, you know, there's been a handful of games within these uh, two series that haven't been very good, uh, but that wasn't the case for the first game of the of the two Conference Finals. It was game one of the Eastern Conference Finals that took place last Tuesday evening between the Celtics and the Heat. It was a really good game for the most part, especially in the first half. It was a competitive game, but a huge third quarter from the Heat fueled their victory in Game 1 at home over the Celtics. This was a game where the Celtics led at halftime, but a, but the Heat outscored Boston 39-14 to in the third quarter, which, like I just said, that was the big swing in this game for Miami. Jimmy Butler had a big game for Miami in this one, 41 points to go along with 9 rebounds and 5 assists. Of course, he's their best player, one of the best players in the NBA, and he was terrific in this game for the Heat. And then they got good contributions from other, other players, uh, not you know, monster performances like Butler did, but Adebayo had, but Bam Adebayo had 10 points. Uh, Gabe Vincent had 17 points. Max Struess had 11 points and Tyler Hero had 18 points. And so all those guys chipped in with double digit point totals and did good things to aid Butler as he was the main playmaker for the Heat on this evening. Uh, the Celtics played well in this game, you know, especially their big time players like Jason Tatum had 29 points, eight rebounds and six assists. You know, he did really good for the, for the Celtics and Jalen Brown had a double double in this game with 20 24 points and 10 rebounds, but ultimately that third quarter, you know, was uh, difficult for Boston, obviously being outscored by 25 points in that quarter. And that was the big reason why they came up short in game one and Miami got the win 118 to 107 in game one of the Eastern Conference Finals. 
Good stuff there. I'll go ahead and go out to the Western Conference Finals Game 1 uh, in San Francisco as the 4-seed uh, Dallas Mavericks faced the 3-seed Golden State Warriors. And uh, this was a game that the Warriors took care of business uh, at home to open up the series. Obviously, this team has uh, been in this situation a lot over the last decade or so, You know, ever since their dynasty started. This is the sixth time in the last eight years they've been in the Western Conference Finals. The Mavericks uh, haven't been to the Western Conference Finals since 2011, so it's been a while for those guys. So you felt like the Warriors, they know how to win in this situation. They won. 112 to 87 in game one and uh, you know the Mavericks kept it close or the Mavericks got off to a slow start only had 18 points in the first quarter it was a single digit game at halftime but it was all about the Warriors um, you know winning that third quarter by 10 points they outscored the Mavericks uh, 58 to 42 in the second half um, and in this game, the Warriors uh, had seven players in double figures, including all five starters. Uh, Steph Curry had 21 points and 12 rebounds. Uh, Andrew Wiggins had 19 points as the second leading scorer on that team. Klay Thompson had 15 points as well. And uh, Jordan Poole also you know, actually had 19 off the bench. So he was tied with Wiggins as the second highest scorer in that game. But a very balanced attack. Um, uh, everyone kind of getting involved for the Warriors in this one. They shot over 50% from the field, which is great. And uh, overall, we look at the Mavericks, they just struggled shooting the basketball. They were 36% from the field. This is a team that loves to shoot threes, or at least they're, they're obviously at the best when they're shooting threes and making them. They were only 22% from the three-point land, and Luka Doncic did not shoot it well. Six for 18 from the field. He had 20 points, but obviously not very efficient, and only made three of his 10 three-point attempts. So uh, they only and they only had you know four players in double figures. So really good performance by the Warriors. Good defensively, and they got the game one win. I'll take the Eastern Conference Finals game two here um, in Miami, of course, on a Thursday night. Uh, this was a game where the Celtics dominated the first half. Uh, they outscored the Heat in the first half 70-45, to and they ended up winning the game easily, 127-102 to even up the series at one game apiece. Um, this game was uh, dominated by the starters for the Celtics. Jason Tatum had 27 points, and then Marcus Martin and Jalen Brown both had 24 points. Um, they also ha had you know Grant Williams off the bench give them 19, so they had six players in double figures. They shot it so well 51% from the field and they shot 50% from three-point land so uh, that's obviously really impressive and the Celtics are a team that I mean anytime a team shoots 50% from three-point range you would think they're probably going to win that game and uh, Marcus Smart was also great in this one I believe he missed game one with a foot injury if I remember correctly and then obviously you know like I said he had 24 points we came back in this game almost had a triple double had a you know a double double with 12 assists uh, to go along with those 24 points and so you know, overall, the Celtics defense was really good. It was all about that first half. They just set the tone early and got to a great start. And the Heat just couldn't, you know, rally back. Jimmy Butler had 29 points. So he was, you know, really good. But they didn't get enough contributions from really anybody else in this game. And they didn't shoot it well uh, from three-point range, only 29%. So in, in this series so far, you know, a couple of blowouts for the most part, a couple of, you know, lopsided advantages, or at least a couple of moments in the game where one team just really uh, put their foot on the gas, opened up a big enough lead. And after that, it was just kind of a no contest. So the Celtics tie up the series at one game apiece in that game to 127-102 win down in Miami. Yeah, good stuff there from you. As I shift back over to the Western Conference Finals, Game 2 of the Western Conference Finals on Friday of this past week, May 20th on that evening. As Tyler talked about earlier, Golden State had a 1-0 series lead coming into this game. And this was a game where Dallas played really well in the first half. They outscored the Warriors by 14 points in the first half and you know really looked good offensively, scoring 72 points in the first half against Golden State. So they really put that Game 1 loss behind them and came out playing really well. 
But unfortunately for them, the Warriors made adjustments at halftime. They really did a good job on the third quarter defensively. The Mavericks only scored 13 points in the third quarter. The Warriors outscored them by 12 in that quarter and clearly got right back in the game. And so they were only down by two points going into the final quarter. And then the Warriors were able to outscore the Mavs by nine points and by 11 points in that final quarter and win the game 126 to 117. As far as the individual performances, we saw uh, Stephen Curry lead the Warriors in scoring with 32 points in this game. And he also had eight rebounds and five assists. And then, of course, we got we saw Jordan Poole have 23 points in this game. And Clay Thompson had 15 points and a big performance from Kevon Looney in this one for the Warriors. who so had 21 points and 12 rebounds. So a huge double double for him, which I guess doesn't seem super surprising because I don't think the Mavs have great size inside necessarily. Or at least in this game, Looney was able to really dominate uh, for the most part and do some great things for Golden State. And they also had two other players in double figures. Otto Porter Jr. had 11 points and Andrew Wiggins had 16 points. So just a really good overall performance by the Warriors across the board. And then as far as the Mavericks, you know, obviously they came out playing really well in the first half, as I mentioned, and they really played well in this game despite, you know, coming up short and blowing their lead in the second half. Uh, but Luka Doncic and Jalen Brunson were just terrific once again. Uh, Doncic had 42 points for the Mavs and Brunson had 31 points for Dallas. And so those guys played really well, accounting for, you know, 73 of their points in this game, which was obviously a good portion of their points. Uh, outside of those two guys, though, not a lot of guys, not a lot of players for the Mavs did a lot. I mean, Reggie Bullock did have 21 points for them, but, you know, they just weren't able to do enough in the second half, obviously. I talked about how they scored 72 points in the first half, and then the second half, they only scored 45 points. And so you have to give credit to Golden State for just stepping up defensively, making the proper halftime adjustments, going out there in the second half and defending home court and getting a big win over the Mavericks in game two of the Western Conference Finals. And then as far as Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Finals, this is on Saturday evening, May 21st. Uh, Tyler talked about how uh, the uh, Celtics got that big road win in Miami in Game 2 of this series. And so now the series shifted to Boston for the first time. Uh, Boston was obviously really excited to host this Game 3. The fans were there in force. It was a raucous environment. But unfortunately for the Celtics, they came out really flat in this game. Uh, they played without Robert Williams in this one, which clearly hurt them uh, because they just didn't do very well. Uh, especially in the first quarter, they were just terrible. The Heat, you know, went crazy in the first quarter. They outscored the Celtics 39-18 to 18 in the opening quarter, which, you know, put Boston in a huge hole. They kind of ch chipped into that hole a little bit in the second quarter, outscoring the Heat by six in that quarter. But then uh, in the third quarter, they, you know, weren't able to make any progress. And in the fourth quarter, they did outscore the Heat by nine points, but it still wasn't enough. They just never really were able to recover from that huge first quarter deficit where the Heat just came out shooting the lights out. The Heat won the game game 109 to 103 uh, and obviously this was a big win for them after they lost game two at home uh, as far as the heat they did and what was even more impressive for the heat too is they lost Jimmy Butler uh, for the second half I don't I think he got hurt I think it was, a, it was some knee inflammation and some point in the second quarter he didn't play at all in the second half so he played 20 minutes in this game and had eight points and that was all in the first half uh, but then they were able to rally despite that you know or at least uh, you know may, do well could do good things in the second half despite not having Butler there because Bam Adebayo was just amazing in this game and his best game of the series he, he didn't do he didn't do very well in game one and two at home but he had 31 points and 10 rebounds in this one for the heat he was the best player uh, and was arguably the best player on the court he was just really dominant for Miami and you know other than that you know Kyle Lowry came back in this game only had 11 points but made an impact for the heat and they also got 17 points from PJ Tucker and 16 points from Max Struess and those guys were able to make it happen but obviously their defense was the big key in this game holding Boston to just over 100 points and you know doing so well in the first quarter you know and, and 
this game, they really did a great job against Jason Tatum. He only had 10 points in this game, really struggled offensively. They did a great job against him defensively. Uh, Jalen Brown had a big night for Boston. He had 40 points in this game to go along with nine rebounds. And Al Horford was really influential for Boston, too, with 20 points and 14 rebounds. But again... That first quarter deficit was just too much for Boston to overcome. They came out flat. They just couldn't make – they weren't good offensively, and they definitely weren't good defensively because the Heat, you know, scoring 39 points in the first quarter is kind of inexcusable if you're Boston. And they are a great defensive team, but they came out really bad in the first quarter. And they also turned the ball over a ton in this game because I watched most of the game, or at least a good amount of it, and they turned the ball over, I think, over 20 times in this game, really struggled in that regard. We're kind of sloppy with it. I mean, you can give credit to the Heat defense, but Boston also just didn't play very well offensively. So it was a great game for the Heat. Heat, and it was a big performance by their guys to go out there and reclaim home court by winning a game on the road here in game three. Yeah, really impressive win for the Heat there to get back home court advantage. As we shift over to uh, Sunday with uh, game three in the uh, Golden State uh, Dallas series, of course, the Western Conference Finals, right? I kind of zoned out there. I was trying to make sure I got the game right. Obviously, it's the Western Conference Finals. Game three is the series shifted to Dallas. Mavericks, of course, uh, as you mentioned, you know, after you recap that second game down in a 2 0 hole, they need to protect their home court advantage here. And, and the Warriors obviously feel like, you know, they're up 2 0. They have all the momentum in this series so far. And on the road, the Mavericks, uh, unable to earn. Excuse me, on the road, the Warriors unable, I guess that's all, on the road, the Warriors got the win at 109 to 100, so the Mavericks unable to protect home court, um, and it was a pretty competitive game, too, probably one of the better games we've seen so far in these two conference finals, um, the Warriors got off to a good start in the third quarter, outscored the Mavs by nine, and then that ended up being the, the margin of uh, victory when it was all said and done, but um you know, really, it was all about, uh, you know, in this game, Andrew Wiggins. He had an awesome game for them. I feel like you kind of forget about Andrew Wiggins when you look at the Warriors because we obviously Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, the Splash Bros, and everything Draymond Green does for that team, and Jordan Poole's emergence so far in the postseason. But Andrew Wiggins is still a guy who, you know, he hasn't really ever reached his ceiling probably. He's always over, I think he's always underwhelmed in his career up to this point. But there's always that potential that he could have a big game, and he did. He was 11 for 20 from the field and 11 rebounds. So a uh, double double with 27 points. He had that big poster dunk over Luka, which was which was a real big energy moment in the game, certainly. And so he was awesome. Steph Curry, obviously, was great. Um, as he typically always is, he had 31 points uh, on 50% from the field and three-point range. He had 11 assists, too. So he had a double-double. And, you know, Clay Thompson gave him 19. So the starters were really good in this game. All, you know, four starters and double figures. Um, for the Warriors in this game. They were good defensively. They, had, they were able to overcome Luka Doncic, who had a 40-burger. He had 40 points, 11 rebounds. He was awesome in this game. And uh, pretty much the, the main contributors on offense, as you expect from the Mavericks, because Jalen Brunson had 20 points, and Spencer Dinwiddie off the bench had 26 points. And all of those guys shot it really well. Um, and so it's, But they weren't able to get like really any contributions from anybody else. And it was really all about Reggie Bullock, who played 40 minutes in this game and was shut out in this game. Had a goose egg. Was 0 for 10 from the field, 0 for 7 from three-point range. He was on uh, obviously not uh, locked in at all, had a terrible night, didn't make a single shot, and that was a big deal, I think, in this game as they just weren't able to shoot it as well, and neither team really shot well from three-point land, but the Warriors able to get the job done and take a commanding 3-0 series lead in that Western Conference Finals. As for uh, the Eastern Conference Finals Game 4 on uh, Monday, uh, this was a game, obviously, in Boston. The Heat with a 2-1 series lead. Now the Celtics kind of in a position where they need to protect uh, their home court, or at least try to even up the series again, because you can't go back. You're not, you're not going to want to have to go back, obviously, to you know Miami, down three games to one. So this was a big game for the Celtics. I think they knew that coming in, and they got off to a heck of a start in this game. Uh, they set the tone early. They outscored the Heat in the first quarter, 29-11. to Miami didn't make a field goal until about 3-20 left in the first quarter, which was one of the longest drafts. Outs, I think to start a postseason game in like 12 years or 13 years it was crazy they had a uh, franchise low 11 points in the first quarter so I mean really right off the bat the Celtics had a heck of a lead 
And, uh, and, you know, in the first half, they outscored the Heat 57-33. to 33, So that was obviously a big deal in the game. Um, overall, you know, when you look at uh, the fact that uh, – trying to exhale there and too much air. All right, so, yeah, going back to the box score now, I wanted to shift over. I talked about that first game for longer than I thought. But, yeah, this is a game where, you know, again, they got off to a great start to Celtics. And I don't think either team shot the ball well at all. It was a really boring game to watch, I think, and especially because it was kind of a blowout. So I think kind of people were kind of frustrated with that. And this series has been really back and forth, and it's been kind of uncompetitive at times and been really sloppy at times as well. And so, you know, neither team shot it good, like I said. They both shot under 40%. Um, the Celtics only shot 23% from three-point range, but they still won the game 102-82 to when it was all said and done. So I, I didn't give them the final score yet, but, I mean, they got off such a great start. It was almost hard for them to lose that lead when they were up so big so early, up by 24 points at halftime. So, you know, Jason Tatum had 31 points in this game. He led all scores. Al Horford was great in this game, 13 rebounds. He had four blocks. They had, Celtics had four players in double figures. Um, or all four, or four of their five starters were the ones who were in double figures. Peyton Pritchard gave him 14 off the bench. So, you know, in this game, it was all about the Celtics defense. Again, limiting the Heat to only 82 points. And the starters for Miami uh, only combined for 18 points in this game. So they were really shut out. They had a ride on their bench. Victor Oladipo did all he could, giving them 23 off the bench. But Jimmy Butler was stifled in this game, three for 14 from the field. Didn't play well at all, and the Celtics get a big win by 20 points. Dominant fashion, pretty slugfest type of a game. The Celtics even up the series of two games apiece, and now game five tonight in Miami. Yeah, it's good stuff for you recapping those games. And now the final game that we have to recap here um, that we can recap that has happened, as we know, uh, we cannot talk about the game tonight because it has not happened yet. So the final game we have to recap is the one that happened last night, and that was game four of the Western Conference Finals between the Mavericks and the Warriors. As Tyler talked about earlier, the Warriors went on the road and won game three and took a commanding 3-0 series lead, which means you can virtually book it because I don't think any team has ever come back from down 3-0 in a series to win it in a best-of-seven series. And so the Mavericks have their backs against the wall and, and the odds aren't with them. But if, they're the Ma- but if you're the Mavericks, they're probably thinking they can tr- go try to make history. You know, they're definitely not going to try. They're definitely not going to throw in the towel. They're going to keep fighting. And we saw that last night in game four when they were finally able to get a win in this series as they're able to defeat the, uh, defeat the Warriors 119 to 109. Uh, this is a game that was close uh, throughout the course of the uh, first half. But the, but the Mavericks did have a pretty uh, solid lead going into the end of the first half. And they led by 15 points at the end of the first half and they built on that in the third quarter so it's actually kind of a blowout when you look at it more uh, as we look at it more uh, in the fourth quarter the Warriors made it closer made it look closer than it was it was certainly a pretty bad game for the most part so the Mavericks came out there not only did they get the win they really dominated in this game and it was because you know they didn't have they didn't put all the uh, onus on Luka Doncic he didn't have to do everything in this game a lot of other guys stepped up and played well along with Doncic who did play really well and led them in scoring with 30 points and 14 rebounds and nine assists so he said a triple double uh, like I said he did lead them in scoring with 30 points but then they also had uh, five other players in double figures Dorian Finney-Smith had a big game with 23 points Reggie Bullock had 18 points after you know he had that terrible game in game two that you mentioned where he didn't score any points so he came back in this one had 18 for um, the Mavericks and Jalen Brunson had 15 points Spencer Dinwiddie had 10 points and Maxi Kleba had 13 points so it was good for them to have a good contribution from a number of different players uh, because you know you just as good as Luka Doncic is he can't do everything by himself and as we saw when I talked about game two earlier Brunson and Doncic were the ones who did most of the work and again you need more than just a couple of guys contributing here you know if you're going to beat the Warriors you have to get contributions from a number of different players and that's what they were able to do last night when they won the game by 10 points but led by I think like almost 30 points I think in the third quarter so 
was really good performance by Dallas to not get swept in this series. You know, he certainly won at least win one game in this series. Uh, as far as the Warriors are concerned, Stephen Curry led them in scoring with 20 points. And they actually had seven other players in, or six other players in double figures in this game. And Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson, Jordan Poole, Moses Moody, and Jonathan Kaminga. But again, you know, I think some of those guys got to double digits in that fourth quarter whenever I think, you know, I don't know how many minutes the, how many minutes the starters played down the stretch because, again, the game got out of hand. The Mavericks really took it to Golden State uh, throughout the course of the game. And then late, the Warriors made it look closer than it was. So overall, the Mavericks, you know, did a good job of not getting swept, of finding a way to win at least one game in this series. And, you know, ultimately they're staying alive. You know, again, the odds aren't, you know, with them right now. The chances of them winning this series are very slim, especially after, you know, going down 3-0 and not looking very good at times. But they're still in it right now. They'll play game five tomorrow night. And we'll see what happens. But for what it's worth, they got one win in this series, winning by 10 points last night. Yeah, it was going for the Mavericks, you know, to kind of, you know, stave off elimination. I'm sure the Eastern Conference teams are happy about that, sitting there in their series just tied at two games apiece, hoping the Warriors don't sweep them and then have all that time off to prepare and rest. And, I mean, the Eastern Conference Finals is certainly the one that's more physical and so far has seen more injuries. Guys come out of there beatered and battered and uh, beaten and battered and, you know, in a position where they're having to kind of play through injuries a little bit. I don't think this series has had that as much. So certainly the Eastern Conference teams are excited about that and hoping the Mavs can, you know, kind of hang on again. And it gets interesting if the Mavs can go on the road tomorrow night you know and win again and make it a game six come back home all of a sudden they could force a game seven when nobody expected that so obviously it's going to come down to game five tomorrow and I mean every game from here is an elimination game for the Mavericks and we'll see if they can stay alive moving forward and you know moving forward as we look ahead to this schedule now we're all caught up through those first you know four games of each series with the Eastern Conference Finals tied at two games apiece and the Warriors leading the Western Conference Finals three games to one we, of course, have Game 5 of the Eastern Conference Finals happening right now as we speak, uh, which just got underway not that long ago, so we're not going to talk about it at all, but that's happening right now in Miami as that series, again, tied at two, so there's no, you know, Miami still has home court advantage in that in that series, and the Western Conference Finals, Game 5, as I mentioned, tomorrow night, back in San Francisco at the Chase Center, the Warriors leading that series three games to one, you know, with that Game 3 win, they knew they were, I think I heard Steph say in the post-game interview after they won Game 3, they could, they could kind of play with house money in Game 4 and see if they can pull off the sweep, but obviously they didn't, but then they know they get to come back home here in game five with a chance to clinch a berth in the finals for the sixth time in the last eight years. So a great opportunity for Golden State to do it in front of the home crowd tomorrow night in game five. And then I can let you carry on with whatever else is uh, down the stretch of the series. Of course, it's just going to keep seesawing every other day. And then if there's if games are necessary up until Memorial Day and then at that point, a couple days off before the uh, NBA finals start next Thursday, June 2nd. Yeah, we uh, you just could do a good job talking about you know the game happening right now and the next game for the Western Conference Finals tomorrow evening. Game six of the Eastern Conference Finals is going to happen no matter what happens tonight, and that will be happening on Friday evening at 7.30 p.m. And then we have game six, if there is one, of the Western Conference Finals happening on Saturday evening at 8 p.m. And again, that might not happen. We'll see what happens tomorrow evening. And then uh, the last two games, if there are two more games after that, you know we'll see if there's a game seven in the Eastern Conference Finals. That, that's series certainly has more of a chance to get to seven than the uh, Western Conference Finals does. But if there is a game seven in the Eastern Conference Finals, it will be on Sunday evening at 7.30 p.m. And if there is somehow a game seven in the Western Conference Finals, uh, that would be on Monday evening at 7 p.m. And that would be the last game of the Conference Finals, obviously. And so we'll see what happens. Like I said, uh, the Mavericks are not in a good spot right now. But as you mentioned, it you know it can it will be interesting if they can find a way to win tomorrow night and force a game six, then they will, then they would be able to come back 
home and have a better chance to win game six at home. And then maybe they can force game seven. And of course, when they have a talented player like Luka Doncic, who is arguably the best player in the league and certainly has, has been one of the best players in the league since he's you know been in the league. You know, obviously he's a playmaker, he's a game changer. And if he can continue to play at the level he has, and of course he's been playing just unbelievable the entire postseason. But if he can, you know, if other guys can step up like they did last night in game four, you know, that game wasn't close. And so the Mavericks have the opportunity, they have the potential, they have the talent, they have the ability to beat the Warriors, but can they do it three more times? It's going to be tough, but I think for them, they just have to take it one game at a time. If they can win tomorrow night and they come back home, they have a better chance to win that one. And they just can't think about having to win three more games. They just have to focus on winning the next one. And their backs are against the wall. They're facing elimination every single time. And we'll see what happens. Definitely. All right. I think we covered the NBA as much as we could uh, for the most part in terms of how we wanted to go about that as we've been consistent with our process uh, throughout this NBA playoffs. And so looking forward to seeing how it all shakes out throughout the rest of the uh, throughout the rest of the week and maybe into the weekend. Obviously, the you know, there's up in the air on whether or not you just discussed all of those, you know, TBDs that are up there in the air, certainly. And we'll see how that goes. But at the end of the day, we're going to have the NBA finals next to Thursday, June 2nd, beginning uh, between, you know, obviously the two best teams and in, in their respective conference, the best team in each conference, depending on whoever comes out on top and so next week when we record which we're looking at uh, recording on Tuesday of next week uh, we'll be able to uh, you know preview the NBA finals make our picks for that and we'll see how that goes so uh, that's all we have for the National Basketball Association and we'll move on to Major League Baseball now again no NFL content or you know, obviously no college football we haven't talked about that in a while and there's no really reason to when we had all the NFL offseason talk we've had a great time with that whole kind of series so to speak we had all the you know episodes for NBA free agency and then the draft and then the schedule last week and so again I, as I mentioned the outset that's kind of run its natural course so no NFL content this time which is cool and so we'll just move on to Major League Baseball and uh, we're going to just do news and notes again I know we're kind of at the quarter mark of the season so far we're going to wait until about two months so like not next week's episode but probably the week after to kind of look back at what's happened so far this season kind of update the standings like a little two-month update since we've and of course, opening day was April 7th. So come June 7th, it'll be two months since opening day. And that'll be right around the next That'll be right around the time we record episode 12. We feel like that'll be a good time for us to look back at the standings and kind of look at where everything sits, you know, still somewhat early in the season, but moving forward. And of course, Memorial Day is on Monday, which is always a big day on the calendar or not always a big day. But I feel like a lot of people who know baseball well and watch it every single year understand that it's kind of like a benchmark day where, you know, early in the season, you, you kind of see like if a team has, you know, is having success, you kind of wait till Memorial Day to see if it's actually real or not and then at that point it kind of becomes like this team might actually hang around and be a real contender or whatever it might be so that's also a good benchmark to look at so we'll be able to dive into that a couple episodes from now and so for now we're just going to focus on news and notes as we have done over the last few episodes ever since the season really started we've been able to you know update you guys every single day anything that's kind of notable happens around the league and we have to go back to last Tuesday because that's the last time we recorded to kind of dive into this we have a handful of news and notes quite a bit actually this week but we'll probably try to run through it with a fair amount of alacrity as we always do so Going back to last week, uh, we had to start with the Houston Astros. Of course, my Astros, who had a five-home run inning in the second inning against the Red Sox last Tuesday night at Fenway Park. Uh, I think that was tied for the major league record for most home runs in a single inning. Um, that was uh, you know, an awesome inning for us, obviously. We're down one nothing coming into that inning, and then Jordan Alvarez hits a two-run homer. Kyle Tucker hits a solo shot. Jeremy Pena, back in uh, his hometown area up there in Boston, hits a solo home run, which is really cool for him and his family. And then Michael Brantley hits a three-run home run, and then Yuli Gurriel with a two-run shot. So, and it actually all happened against Nathan Eovaldi, uh, who is actually like the ace of the Red Sox staff. And everyone would agree that he's the ace of that staff. So it was even more impressive. He was just throwing the kitchen sink at the Astros and they were hitting everything out. And it was so much fun to watch. And uh, Eovaldi actually became the third pitcher to ever allow five home runs in a single inning. Um, so that was, that's pretty remarkable. And so obviously not, a t- obviously there's not good for him being on the wrong side of that, but it was really cool to be able to watch that. 
And then Kyle Tucker ended up hitting, you know, a grand slam later in the game. What ended up being a 13 to four Astros win. We ended up pounding out six home runs. Kyle Tucker had six RBI in the game. So that was a really cool win and a really, you know, definitely a notable thing. You don't see that very often. Certainly we were, we were keeping up with it and it was just ridiculous. Five home runs in one inning. So that's kind of how we get this news and notes segment started. I'll let you get started on this one because it's probably more relatable for you than me. Yeah, last Tuesday evening, we saw uh, two saves from two brothers. We had Edwin Diaz with the Mets, who recorded a save last Tuesday night, and then also Alexis Diaz with my Cincinnati Reds, who recorded his first career MLB save uh, last Tuesday as well, and that was against the Guardians. I don't remember who Ed Diaz recorded his save against, uh, but it was funny because I didn't know that Alexis Diaz was actually Edwin Diaz's brother until we were watching uh, Quick Pitch, which is a highlight show on MLB Network every single night, and then I you know, was actually able to, because he's been a terrific reliever for for us this year, a guy who was actually a surprise roster, a guy who surprisingly made the roster uh, out of spring training because I don't think he had pitched above Double A before this season, but he pitched really well in spring training. He made the team, and he had been our best reliever this year by far. He'd been terrific all year long, and then you know he's been used to kind of a more of a kind of a middle innings type of role, but he's still been really successful. And then in that game, we needed him in extra innings to go out there and try to get the save. And he was able to make it happen. And then watching him record the save, I realized that he kind of looked like Edwin Diaz and also kind of threw like him as well. And I was like, he looks like he might is that Edwin Diaz's brother and then I looked it up and of course he was and I was like that's really cool I didn't know that and I know that you said that's what and you have the stat I don't know the exact stat but they both recorded the save on the same day the third pair of brothers right isn't it to record uh, a save I on actually, the same day I don't have a stat for it I don't, I don't actually have a stat so oh, okay I thought I think it was like I don't remember I think it might have been the third if I'm not mistaken I think it might have been something like that obviously it's pretty rare uh, to see two brothers uh, record a save on the same night. Uh, I think Edwin Diaz was against the Cardinals, and then, then uh, of course, like you said, Alexis Diaz was against the uh, Guardians, right? And that was you are playing the Cleveland, right? So, yeah, that was really cool. He was a great point by you. He did pitch like him, very similar um, in their style. Of course, you know, I'm sure they fed off of each other up until this point, even though Edwin Diaz had a brother. And so that's that's cool. And he's got some nasty stuff, too. We'll see if he's a closer one of these days as, as good as his brother is. And so that was that was kind of cool. And certainly, obviously, we're brothers, so it's always kind of cool to see that. And, you know, it's always good to see like kind of families having success together at the same time and so definitely something to note from last Tuesday and and now we'll move to Wednesday May 18th as we head to a new news uh, or a new you know you know, a chunk of notes here, obviously, but Albert Pujols, we'll start with him, uh, moved up the hits list. This was that same. That's why I knew it was against the the, the Cardinals because that was the Cardinals Mets early in the series. It was series early last week, and so this is actually the game that Max Scherzer got hurt. You know, it was, it was against the, which I guess we can know, even though I don't really talk about injuries that much, much Max Scherzer out going to be out like six to eight weeks now with a oblique injury, which is really a tough deal for the Mets. I and mean, he was pitching in this game. He didn't pitch that well. I mean, he's kind of grinded through it, but all about Albert Pujols with this one who moved up the all-time hits list. And it's going to be notable because, you know, Miguel Cabrera has been moving up hits list since, ever since he got to 3000, but it hasn't really been like, he's moving up in the twenties, which is great, but not really notable necessarily. But Albert Pujols, of course, reached 3000 quite a a little while ago at this point, um, but he moved into number 10 all time on the hits list, passing up Eddie Collins uh, with his 3,314th career hit. He actually had, uh, he actually tied Collins and then passed him up in a multi-hit effort for Albert Pujols last week to move into the top 10 on the all-time hits list, which definitely notable. Anytime you get in a top 10, especially of a list like that, really quite remarkable. He's only, uh, you know, a few hits shy of Paul Molitor for number nine. Heck, he might actually be there now since this happened last week. So really great stuff on the big machine. 
Yeah, and real quick before I talk about that, I did want to clarify that uh, according to Anthony DeComo, who is the beat writer for MLB.com for the Mets, he said that Edwin Diaz and Alexis Diaz were the third pair of brothers in Major League history to cord saves on the same day. So that is, it was really cool to see that uh, for those two guys. And like you said, Albert Pujols, you know, getting to that milestone on the hits list, obviously one of the best players in MLB history. And, you know, I think this is going to be his last season. We talked about that before, but he's, you know, playing back in St. Louis, which is great to see for him and for that franchise. He's been doing great things for the most part this season for the Cardinals and limited playing time and it was great to see him reach another milestone on the hits list uh just really awesome and like I said I don't like the Cardinals but I respect them and I respect Pujols and Molina and all the great players they've had over the years and certainly Pujols is one of those guys who tormented my Reds over the years he's tormented your Astros back in the day because I think he's had most the most home runs at Minute Maid Park than he has any other ballpark but that was kind of unrelated stat here that I just brought up but anyways it was great to see him do that uh last week yeah, he's just his nickname is just the machine, not the big machine. I don't know why I said that. I think I was almost combining the big unit, Randy Johnson, with the machine, Albert Pujols. But yeah, really cool stuff. You had a multi-hit game again. Both hits came against Max Scherzer, a future Hall of Famer. So that's a matchup. It's obviously cool to see. And uh, and the Mets ended up winning that game. And again, Scherzer got hurt, but all about Albert Pujols that night. That was really cool to see. And also on Wednesday of last week, Nick Pavetta threw a complete game shutout against, uh, or not a complete game shutout. I beg your pardon. He actually allowed a leadoff home run to Jose Altuve, and then after that, he went the distance, threw a complete game against my Astros. So the night after the Astros pound out, uh, you know, five home runs in the second inning, uh, six home runs overall with, uh, you know, 13 runs scored in that game. Nick Pavetta comes back the very next night and throws a complete game against us as the Red Sox won that game and actually won the series. So you don't see that very often nowadays. Guys going, you know, full nine innings, a go, go complete game. Um, but certainly that was impressive from Nick Pavetta, who's been pitching better lately for the Red Sox. And speaking of the Red Sox, they're one of the hottest teams in MLB. And so we can move on to Thursday, May 19th. There was only one note to mention from last uh, Thursday on the 19th of May. And it was Trevor Story, uh, who, you know, got off to a really slow start. Everybody in Boston knows that. Everybody around MLB knows he got off to a really start, a slow start this year. But he's had a lot of pressure probably put on himself because he signed that big six-year, $140 million contract and joins a great lineup. And, you know, Red Sox fans, they want to see, you know, the big money guy come through. And he's been heating up lately. He's been on fire. And he had a three-homer game against the Mariners last Thursday. Um, really impressive stuff seven RBI and uh, certainly that was his biggest moment as a Red Sox no doubt uh, great game for Trevor Story again he's on fire right now yeah, he's been absolutely terrific as of late. Of course, as you know, he really struggled, you know, early in the season. And he had, you know, like you say, he signed that big contract. He'd feel like maybe he was like pressing a little bit, uh, you know, and certainly he was kind of like he came over from Colorado. And of course, we all know that Colorado is a hitter's haven. And he was so great in his time there with the Rockies. And so now he comes to a new team and you're like, you know, is he going to be able to live up to what he did there when he's not playing there at, you know, Coors Field, you know, uh, for half of his games. And so he came out this season really struggling, not doing well at all. And I think he heard some boos at times at Fenway Park because he was just struggling so much and you know they give him a lot of money and fans want to see production they want to see him do good things but you have to think he also had to switch positions he's a shortstop and they're making him play second base for right now while Alexander Bogarts is still their everyday shortstop and so that might play into a little bit too having to play a new position and, and having that aspect of things to think about too because that could affect players but now he's finally started to click a little bit he's finally starting to get settled you know it's a new place and so you have to give him some time I just think fans don't want to be patient but sometimes that's what it takes for guys to get settled a little bit going to a new team for the first time in his career but now he's been playing unbelievable over the past you know handful of weeks or really days I mean he's just been really clicking right now and like you said the three homer game was terrific and that was definitely his best game as a Red Sox and really his coming out party and the fans certainly weren't booing that night they were cheering loudly because that was an amazing performance by Trevor Story who's on fire right now as you mentioned. 
Yeah, definitely. And we have another Trevor Story note as the very next one from Friday, May 20th, the very next night. Uh, the Red Sox really took it to the Mariners in that series. I think they, I think they swept them or at least took three of four. They, again, they've been really playing well lately after a slow start. They're getting closer back to 500. And uh, Trevor Story uh, had a historic grand slam in that game. Or I mean, I should start by saying he hit a grand slam in that game, and it ended up being historic because uh, you know he just did it in the game after a three home run game. So he's only the third player in MLB history to have a grand slam in the game after a three home run game joining Sammy Sosa and uh, Jeremy Burnett's uh, who both did it actually in the 21st century as well. Something ha- had, had never happened until you know 2001 with Burnett, 2002 with Sosa. Now it's 20 years and since we've seen it again with Trevor Story picking up four more RBI with one swing of the bat on Friday night and a win against the Mariners. I believe they ended up hanging on to win that game. So I mean we just have so much Trevor Story notes. He, he provided a lot uh, this week for the Bo Sox and so uh, that was really cool. And then uh, Josh Rojas for the Arizona Diamondbacks had a three-home run game as well at Wrigley Field. This is the second of three that we're actually going to mention in this note section. So we got guys mashing all over the place lately. I guess offense is starting to come around a little bit as the other is heating up. The wind was blowing out last Friday at Wrigley Field, and Josh Rojas took advantage of that with a three-home run game. And that was a game where I believe uh, the Diamondbacks and the Cubs combined for 11 home runs in that game, I think, which was tied for I think, the most ever in a game. Uh, 11 home runs in one game, something like that. It was just crazy. They were all hitting – I mean, a lot of guys were hitting the ball out of the yard. I think David Peralta had a pair of home runs. Their rookie outfitter Alec Thomas had a solo shot. So there was a lot of home runs in that game. And Josh Ross with the three homer game there at Wrigley Field, which is something he'll never forget, certainly, as the Diamondbacks offense has been playing better lately. And then Martin Perez had a complete game shutout against my Astros last Friday in Houston, uh, which is really impressive. Astros twice in three days have a pitcher go the distance against them. And this time he shut us out. Um, really effective and efficient. Uh, got a number of double plays in this game. Uh, ended up kind of, you know, the ninth inning was tough for Martin Perez, but he grinded through it and found a way to leave uh, a pair of strows on base. The tying Rose at the plate with Yuli Gurriel got him to pop out or fly out. Pretty shallow fly ball. And so really impressive stuff from Martin Perez, who's actually been one of the best pitchers in baseball over the last month or so. Yeah, he's definitely been terrific, and I have him on my fantasy team, picked him up recently, and he certainly has been one of the best starters in baseball over the last, you know, over his last six starts. I think he has the lowest ERA uh, in baseball over those last six starts since that last, since that, that, it was like sometime in April where he made that first of those six starts, that's what I'm trying to say, and so he's been terrific, but even when you look at his entire body of work, he's been terrific and has been one of the best starters in MLB so far this year. We'll see if he can keep it going, and the Rangers, you know, as a whole, they're playing, you know, decent baseball right now. I think we expect them to be better this year, and now, you you know, that they made moves in the offseason. And it's kind of surprising that they've been better despite Marcus Simeon, who they paid a ton of money to play second base for them, who had a terrific year last year with the Blue Jays and hit over 40 home runs with Toronto. And, and then so far this year, he has just been in a, you know, perpetual slump. He's just really been struggling for them. So if he can ever get going, they can, you know, really make some noise in some capacity. I mean, I don't think they can do a lot, but I think they've been good this year so far. And they've certainly been better than they were last year. Martin Perez has been a big part of that. And like you said, that was a huge start for him in Houston. You know, it's not easy to go into Houston and, and and, and shut down the Astros like he did. And like you said, had a couple of, had like three double play balls, I believe, in that game, which was really huge for him and helped him be really efficient throughout the course of the game. And then it was really cool to see, you know, Chris Woodward, the Rangers manager, go out there at the end. And, you know, he thought he might take him out after that tying run was at the plate. You know, two guys reached with two outs in the ninth, and then, and then Gurriel came up and was the tying run. But Woodward came out there and just kind of, Pat him on the shoulder and say, you got this. I know you can do this. I know you can get this guy out. So he put trust and faith in his starter and, you know, let Perez finish the job and he paid off his manager's trust. And that was a really cool moment because you see a lot of guys get taken out nowadays, but it's good to see Chris Woodward put trust in his guy, give him an opportunity to finish the game and he was able to make it happen. And that was a cool moment for the Rangers and for Perez. And it's a good night for Texas. 
Good night for MLB, uh, for, for sure, and to, to some extent as well. I mean, I think this week was a good for MLB to some extent because that was actually, you know, the second complete game that I mentioned now. We've mentioned, we actually have one more still left to mention. So we had, I already mentioned, we already talked about two players who had three homer games, two guys who threw complete games. We still have one and one in both categories still left on this note sheet as we move to Saturday, May 21st. It's a pretty quick stuff, I think, in this on this day. Um, but, you know, Mike Trout actually scored his 1,000th career run, which is obviously a notable milestone, a definitely a big achievement for one of the best players we've ever seen. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Mike Trout is one of the goats of baseball, even though he still has a long way to go in his career, at least a pretty good March. He's still playing better than ever before, probably at this point in his career. Um, definitely. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he scored a thousand more. Maybe I don't know. I may be a little outlandish to say that right now, but I don't know. You know, he's about halfway through his career. You would think he's been healthy. You know, this season been great again. I don't know how long he wants to play. Of course, his contract is still really large. And so he's got to 1000 career runs and we'll see how much farther he goes for sure. 1500. I don't know about 2000, but we'll see. Yeah, certainly it's a big milestone for him. And like you say, he has been one of the best players in MLB history, even though he's, you know, still has, you know, a number of years left, you would think, but he's three time AL MVP and it's been terrific over his time in the league. And, you know, unfortunately for him, his team hasn't had very much success during his time with the Angels. But hopefully, you know, this year can be a, a difference, can be different. And they hopefully, you know, they can make the playoffs. They're certainly playing good baseball right now. He's been a big part of that. Like you said, he's kind of regained his form a little bit uh, because over the past couple of years, he's been, you know, in the shortened year in 2020, he wasn't that great necessarily, at least up to his standards last year he battled injuries and was out for a good amount of the season missed a good portion of the season due to that calf injury so it's good to see him back playing well doing good things for them and scoring that 1000th career run is a big milestone for a guy who's a great ambassador for the game one of the greatest players of all time and one of the best players in the league right now and so it's great to see him do that Definitely. We also have, uh, we've seen some MLB debuts lately and uh, we got, we saw the biggest MLB debut of the season for sure on Saturday night as Adley Rushman, the number one overall prospect in baseball by many outlets, uh, made his debut with the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, really cool stuff for Adley Rushman. Of course, he was drafted number one overall in 2019 from Oregon State. Uh, it's kind of been, you know, pasted as the face of the franchise or the face of the rebuild rather for this franchise and a guy who hopefully can be the centerpiece for a, a long time up there in Baltimore, obviously controlling the pitching staff and doing a great job behind the plate, but also what he can do at the plate. I believe he's a switch hitting catcher, and uh, his first career hit was a triple uh, that night, so that was cool, and the fans loved seeing him there. I think I saw that we saw the video on Quick Pitch where he kind of looked back and looked around the stadium and really took in the moment, which was really cool. I mean, this is a guy who's, you know, has all the talent in the world and certainly wants to enjoy that moment and take that in as his MLB debut last Saturday night, and they lost. Actually, I think, did they win that game in extras? I can't remember if they walked it off or not, but either way, it was a memorable night for everybody there at Camden Yards. Yeah, it was definitely cool to see him debut, make his MLB debut. Obviously, a huge prospect and one of the biggest prospects in a long time, and certainly a guy who people think could be one of the greatest catchers the game has ever seen because of his talent and skill set. It was great to see him debut, and it was cool that he was able to take it all in before he you know, was able to settle into the game, was able to take everything in, and really enjoyed the scene, enjoyed the fans embracing him and cheering for him to make his MLB debut. And then to get that first hit was awesome, you know, that first night. And uh, like you said, he's a switch hitting catcher, which is a big deal. And that's, obviously, can, uh, it's really impactful. Don't see that a lot from catchers and so it's really cool and to get that first hit as it would be the triple you know is like also matches you know Manny Machado who obviously he's played for the Orioles and debuted with them his first career hit was a triple and so that was pretty cool that that both of them had had their first career hit be a triple but definitely cool to see him debut and like you said he's kind of like he's gonna be that base of that rebuild and obviously the catcher is an important position on the field and you know a lot of catchers you know it's kind of a, a position where you don't get a lot of offensive output sometimes but if you do have a guy who can be really good at the plate and also really good at you know working with the pitching staff and being a great defensive catcher, then that's a, it's an advantage you can have over the other team. So it's going to be fun to watch him going forward. And it was certainly great to see him debut and get his first 
career MLB hit that night. Yeah, I believe Matt Wieters uh, also back in 2009 uh, had his first his first career hit for the Orioles was a triple, and he was a big catching prospect for them and had a number of great years in the league. So we'll see. Rushman has a long career ahead of him. Certainly wish him the best. And excited to see him up here now in the show. Uh, one more note from Saturday, Brian Reynolds had inside the park home run uh, against the Cardinals. The Pirates lost this game 5-4, to four, but this was an exciting play. It was actually a stand-up inside the park home run because it kicked off the high wall and rolled all the way down the warning track. And uh, it was actually about a routine of an inside the park home run, I think, as, as you'll ever see. It actually came off of Matt Liberator, who made his debut for the Cardinals, one of their better pitching prospects. They had a couple of guys come up recently, along with Nolan Gorman, one of their higher-rated prospects. So we're starting to see more prospects come up, probably more of a service time type thing as we get closer to June and how that all goes. So excited to see some of these young guys up here. And Brian Reynolds obviously been around for a couple of years and one of the better younger players, one of the more underrated young talented players in this game, I think. And so that was cool to see as we shift over to Sunday, May 22nd. Uh, we saw the uh, the last of the three complete games we mentioned from this note section. It was Sandy Alcantara earning his fourth career complete game for my Marlins. So happy for Sandy. I love that guy. He's been so great for us for a number of years now. Uh, I, th- I don't think he's underrated necessarily in the game of baseball, but I still don't know if he gets exact as much attention and as much respect as he deserves. Um, ERA has been great this year. He always goes deep into games. Uh, went nine innings in this one. Obviously, like I said, complete game. Wasn't a shutout, and that wasn't even, but actually it probably should have been because he, he allowed three runs, but they were all unearned runs. The defense was a little sloppy at times. I'm just thankful that we were able to get him run support in that game. We won 4-3 to against the Braves. Salvage a serious sweep. It was a very much needed win for us because we've been kind of struggling a little bit, losing close games, and obviously don't want to get swept by the Braves at home. So uh, when Sandy's on the mound, we expect to win. As long as we give him run support, it's usually not going to be his fault if we lose whenever he starts because at times in his career, we just haven't been able to give him the run support he needs despite how great he's always been. It was his fourth career complete game, like I said, and it was a really fun to watch him. But to close the game out, I think he had 115 pitches. I was a little surprised Don Mattingly left him in there, but I'm really happy that Don did and had all that faith and trust in him to get the job done and he did yeah it was definitely a great performance by Sandy Alcantara and you nailed it I think that you know he, he may not be underrated necessarily but he certainly doesn't he doesn't seem like he gets talked about enough as one of the best pitchers in the game and he definitely is you know and it's just because he plays for Miami and you know even though Miami's a big city and a, and a good market there's just there's not a lot of conversation sometimes regarding the Marlins but you know they definitely have good pitching prospects and definitely good you know arms there and Alcantara is you know one of them along with Pablo Lopez those two guys are one of the best duos starting pitching duos and all of MLB and, and I feel like them as a pair don't get talked about enough either but certainly Alcantara has been terrific over the past handful of years and I remember he made the all-star game a few years ago kind of just by default because you guys need an all-star but now I definitely think he's on track to make another all-star game he deserves it because he's been terrific all season long and it was not a complete game for him his fourth in his career like you said he's always been a guy who can give you length he's just got a guy who's got just nasty stuff too I mean he's got to change up like 90 91 miles per hour I mean he's got some of the best stuff in the game too so certainly if he played for a team like you know that, that people you know maybe it's on TV a little bit more and that people watch more he would get talked about a lot more than he does he certainly is one of the best pitchers in MLB it was great to see him go out there and make it happen and it was great to see Don Mattingly you know stick with him because like I said I was kind of surprised too they stuck with him after those after that first double and after you know those back-to-back doubles to start the inning but he stuck with him and that's a good thing because you know sometimes you never know what you're going to get when you open that bullpen door you know Sandy was pitching really well and he trusted that he'd go out there and finish the game and wanted to see him finish it despite the high pitch count and it was good to see him do it. Yeah, I think the Marlins on Instagram said, like, life is a beach, and we're just playing in the sand. And it was a, that was the post afterwards, and uh, the Sandman getting it done, going the distance, really fun to see, and uh, that was a really good win for us, as I mentioned. We also saw Yadier Molina make a, his pitching debut on Sunday, and that was a uh, that was a, the, the Sunday morning leadoff game on Peacock, which, you know, I don't have Peacock, so I couldn't watch, but certainly heard about it and watched some of the highlights afterwards. They were up 18 to nothing going into the ninth inning. The Pirates have just been absolutely destroyed in some of these games this year, and the Cardinals, you know, took it to them on that Sunday morning 
morning slash or afternoon, and they were up 18 nothing going to the ninth inning. So they put Yadier Molina on the bump, made, allowed him to make his pitching debut one week after Yadier, or one, one week after Albert Pujols made his pitching debut, and they actually had very similar stat lines when it was all said and done. I think Pujols allowed one less hit, but I think he walked a giant in that game last week, and similar setup, but they were blowing him out, and it was funny to see Yadier Molina out there pitching after doing everything he's done in his entire career behind the plate. He was out there pitching, and, and Adam Wainwright was actually catching. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> you imagine if that battery was flipped around? <laughs> Thought I would crack that little joke real quick, but uh, it was cool to see him out there. Uh, he was, wasn't throwing very hard. I'm sure he'd probably throw hard if he wanted to, didn't want to hurt himself, but that was a, a cool moment to see to some extent, kind of funny, and uh, I'm sure people got a kick out of it. And uh, and then Joey Votto uh, went yard in his native land. I'll let you talk about that before I do a little bit. Yeah, it was great to see Joey Votto hit his first home run of the season in Toronto. You know, this may be the last time he plays in his native homeland, in the city where he grew up. Like I said, 10 minutes from downtown Toronto is where he grew up. And so it's great to see him do that. He's really struggled this year for the most part. Uh, but then he had, you know, and then he dealt with a bout of COVID. He was out for a while on the COVID injured list. Uh, but I'm really thankful that he was able to overcome that and get back into baseball shape after, you know, had a little bit of a minor league rehab assignment, was able to come back for this series in Toronto because, again, it might be the last time he plays in his native homeland of Canada and he's played really well for the most part against the Blue Jays in his career and it was great to see him hit his first home run of the season there on Sunday afternoon hit off the foul pole uh, the right field foul pole but it was definitely a good home run for him and it was a huge home run because it gave us a lead in that game and helped us salvage the series after we lost both of the first two games in close fashion so you know I'm happy to see him you know hit his home hit his first home run of the season in Toronto it's really fun to see that it was really great for the for the fans to embrace him on that first game of the series on Friday evening they certainly embraced him because he's one of the best players from Canada all time. Uh, you know, you can make the case he is the best player from Canada all time. And so it's great for them to embrace him there for that opening game. And then for him to home run, hit a home run in that final game, help us win that one was really awesome. So, and hopefully that gets him going a little bit. Maybe it will. Tonight he's had a good game against the Cubs this evening. I think he's starting to get, a little, get things going a little bit more as of late. And I really hope he can because I want to see him do well. Uh, and it was really great to see him do that in uh, Toronto. Yeah, definitely hit it out of the ballpark. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think I almost felt like it was off the facade the second deck maybe it looked like it could have been but either way it doesn't really matter he hit it well down the line kept it fair and uh like you said it was a big home run in the game gave you guys the lead i think it broke the, the tie up there and, and of course he went on to win that game and salvage a series sweep so uh cool for joy Votto. i know we saw him you know in his post-game interview there on quick pitch it was not emotional but it was really you know happy uh for how it all turned out that weekend and really not like i said not emotional but you know certainly respecting the opportunity to go back and play in canada again and that was really cool and I'm, I'm happy for him you know joy Votto is one of the nicest guys in the game i don't think you're gonna find anybody that can say a bad thing about Joey Votto so that was cool to see for him I'm happy for him to be able to do that in his native land as we move on to Monday, May 23rd, just a couple days ago, of course, we start with the new week with the players of the week. And so we have to go back to, of course, Trevor Story, who won AL Player of the Week. And we've talked about what he's done. Uh, seven games, he batted 360, hit six home runs, 14 RBI, and had an OPS north of 1,500. Of course, he talked about his three-homer game, his grand slam, and everything he's done so far for the Red Sox as of late. And deservedly wins the AL Player of the Week. Uh, I think for the, I'm not exactly sure how many times, I think it was the first time in his career he's won Player of the Week since 2019, I think. I'm not sure how many it's been, but that was the first time uh, in a number of years for Trevor Story. And then out in the National League, Samuel Contra of my Marlins won Player of the Week in the National League. So happy for Sandy. It was his first career Player of the Week honor. Uh, two starts uh, so far, or excuse me, two starts uh, in the week. He pitched eight innings of, uh, I think, one run ball against the Nationals and a win on Tuesday night over Washington. So that was great to see. He was awesome in that game. And then, of course, he had the complete game against the Braves to win that series, or excuse me, to win that game and, and again, salvage a series sweep. So he had a 0.53 ERA, was 2-0, 
17 innings pitched, 12 strikeouts, only three walks. Andy Alcantara, terrific for my Marlins last week. And I'm happy to see him earn his first uh, player of the week honor in his career. And so that was really cool. Those are the players of the week uh, in their respective leagues from, from this past week in baseball. We also wanted to mention an early home run derby we had in Arizona. I, I, I put that on the notes. That's how I labeled it. But there was like five home runs hit in the first inning on Monday night between the Diamondbacks and the Royals, which I believe tied a major league record for the most home runs in an inning. Um, and it was not, I'm not sure how many times it happened in the first but it was pretty rare to see that those teams scored quite a bit of runs in that game. And they scored a lot yesterday's game as well. Both those games between those two teams that interleague series scored a lot of runs and they were just out mashing early in that first inning on Monday night. And I also wanted to mention that uh, Francisco Lindor recorded his 500th RBI uh, for the, not for the Mets, but in his career. Obviously, a lot of that came in Cleveland. The second year in New York has been a lot better than his first. Uh, hit a double down the left field line. I think it was a ground rule double. And so he picked up his 499th and 500th career RBI. Uh, and that was cool to see for Mr. Smile. Yeah, definitely a good milestone for Francisco Lindor, who, of course, has played so well in his career. He was in Cleveland for a number of years and then was traded to the Mets before last season. Really struggled last year for the most part with uh, New York. But this year, he's played really well for the most part. Uh, started out really good. Kind of slowed down a little bit, but he's picked it up more as of late. And certainly uh, one of the best players in the game right now. And when he's playing as well as he can. And like I said, Mr. Smile, he's got the best smile in MLB. And certainly he's a guy's great personality. You know, I've seen him mic'd up in the All-Star game over the years. And it's always a great to hear from him so it's he's a great player a good guy to cheer for a good guy to get excited about it was great for him to get his 500th career rbi the other evening Definitely. And as we move on to our last day, yesterday, Tuesday, May 24th, just two more notes to mention. Uh, Kevin Kiermeyer hit an inside the park home run yesterday against my Marlins. It was on the very first pitch of the game. And uh, and so that was interesting. It, was, I mean, it wasn't a stand-up inside the park home run like Brian Reynolds, but uh, he you know sped around the base pass as quickly as he could. It was a slide in safely. And I think I saw on the bottom line on MLB Network that it was the first inside the park home run to lead off a game uh, since Whit Merrifield did it in 2019, I believe. So that was also notable about what happened there with that inside the parker yesterday as the Rays uh, took care of business against my Marlins pretty comfortably in that game, mashed three homers and a 4 nothing win against Pablo Lopez, who's had a couple of uh, not rough starts necessarily, but his last two starts haven't been as crisp, so hopefully he can uh, figure out whatever, you know, small, you know, hopefully he can fix what he's doing wrong, if anything at all, and just kind of get bounced back and better moving forward, but Kevin Kiermeyer certainly I was, uh, you know, not for me as a Marlins fan, cool to see, but man, he got he got around the bases pretty quickly there and took advantage of uh, Jesus Sanchez misplaying it in center field on a diving attempt and just missing it completely. And then last note from last night, one of the craziest games I think we've seen all year so far out in the Bay uh, between the Mets and the Giants. Jock Peterson in a three-home run game. Uh, he also had an RBI single in this game. The Mets uh, came back from you know a huge deficit. They were down like eight to two, and they ended up coming back to take the lead ten to eight. And this game was a little bit back and forth down the stretch. The Giants ended up walking it off, uh, thirteen to twelve. An RBI single by Brandon Crawford. I think Jock Peterson's RBI single tied the game at twelve, and then Crawford won it there with an RBI single. And so the Giants they've been struggling lately. That was a big win for them. 13 to 12 uh, actually didn't go into extra innings surprisingly but even though it's such a high scoring game and I think they won today too so but Jock Peterson's been struggling I think up until that point had a pretty good start to the year and was kind of in a slump but he got going a big way last night with the three homer game yeah definitely a huge game for the Giants and what a great effort from them to come back after blowing that huge lead and like you said Jock Peterson had three home runs in that game uh, you know and he'd really been struggling for a while now he had four hits in the game and he had like four hits over the last 15 days prior to, t to last night so he'd really been struggling he had been a major slump uh, for the Giants but last night came out in a 
came out uh, swinging and played really well for them with those three home runs. Like you said, they were winning eight to two at one point in the game. I think it was in the fourth. It was in the fifth inning when they went up eight to two. Uh, and then, you know, the Mets kept fighting as they've done, as we've seen them do this year so far. And, you know, they started out with Francisco Lindor, who we just talked about earlier. He had a two run home run in that game. And then they also had, and then they, of course, and so then it was eight to four. And then it was in the eighth inning was a huge inning for the Mets. They scored seven runs in the inning. And it was highlighted by Lindor having a three run triple in that inning for the Mets. And so all of a sudden they came all the way back. They took an 11 to eight lead and you're thinking, how in the world did they do this again? Because you saw them, you know, come back against the Phillies earlier, earlier this season in the game that we talked about. Uh, but then the Giants, you know, fought back. Peterson tied it up with a three run homer in the very, in, in, the, in, the, in that same inning, in the eighth inning. And then like you mentioned, uh, the Mets went up 12 to 11 in the ninth inning, but then the Giants came right back and won 13 and 12 in the bottom of the ninth inning and walked it off. So it was really just, a, I think it was the craziest game of the year so far for sure with the way that it went and just kind of going back and forth and just uh, blowing leads left and right. But it's a great performance on the Giants and Jock Peterson. It was a huge win for the Giants because like you said, they've really been kind of struggling as of late. You know, they had got swept by the Padres over the weekend at home. And then, you know, they lost game one of this of the Mets series on Monday night. And then last night was a huge win for them after they blew that big lead. They didn't want to lose again and, you know, keep, you know, they wanted to end that losing streak and they were able to do that in a big way and in a crazy game yesterday or last night. Definitely. So that's all we have for MLB. Probably lasted longer segments than we thought. I knew we had a lot of notes, and we might have expanded on it more than we probably anticipated, but that was a good 30-minute, I suppose, or around 30 minutes of content there in Major League Baseball. A lot of, like I said, a lot of hap- a lot happened, especially with the home runs and the shutouts, or well, not the shutouts, but the three homer games, the complete games, kind of the highlight. I'm surprised that was a theme over the last week in Major League Baseball. We'll see how, if that continues over the next week before we record again next Tuesday. Won't be as many notes next week, which will be nice, as we have a couple, you know, we have, you know, less days in between recordings, but we'll see what kind of notes we get next week we'll move on now to the pga tour and recap the pga championship from last week in tulsa at southern hills it was a great uh, pga championship to be a, to build a watch i watched more of this golf tournament than i have all season long and for probably the most i've ever watched in a long time maybe ever honestly i watched a lot of it. at least i had it on the entire time and was like maybe multitasking with other things i had to do but i was certainly watching it thursday through sunday and it was a lot of fun to watch certainly the story lines are the theme it's not the theme, but the the, the storyline early on was the wind, you know, and how much of a factor the weather was. It was more windy in the afternoon on Thursday, which affected some of the afternoon. You got some of the golfers that were you know teeing off in the afternoon who drew that uh, as their time slot to tee off. And then you know if you were if you teed off in the afternoon on Thursday, that means you were going to be teeing off in the morning on Friday. And unfortunately for those golfers, it ended up being Friday morning was apparently the wind was going to be worse in the afternoon. So uh, some of the, so definitely the golfers that drew the morning tee time Thursday and the afternoon tee time Friday got the benefit of the doubt with the weather and not having to deal with the wind as much because in the afternoon on Friday it just got really still and we saw some low scores there on Friday but this was a very competitive uh, golf tournament I think we saw a lot of names at the top of the leaderboard we weren't expecting to see but it was all said and done we saw a very familiar name Justin Thomas ended up becoming the PGA champion here in 2022 and he did it in probable fashion he was down seven strokes entering the final round which was tied for the third largest comeback in major championship history it was a second major win he also won the PGA championship back in 2017 it's kind of interesting he's only won two majors in his career you know, ever since I started watching golf, maybe even before I really started watching it, I've always felt like for sure Justin Thomas, one of the better golfers in you know, on, on the tour, but it's tough to win a major. You know, I feel like 
We look at some of these golfers line. When is he going to win a major? He hasn't won one. He's only won, you know, or Justin Thomas, he's only won one coming into this. I mean, there's only four majors a year and it's the best field. You know, it's always like, there was always, you know, outstanding golfers. That's always one of the best fields when it comes to a major. And so you don't have that many opportunities and it's tough to win. I saw some quotes afterwards of Justin Thomas talking about, you know, it's hard to win a major and you start, you know, wondering if you, you know, when it's going to happen again for you, especially a guy who's, you know, had a five-year drought or whatever in between. He's only won one major in his career. It's tough to win, but, you know, credit to him. He was amazing uh, down the stretch. He was absolutely dialed in. Uh, had to go to a playoff uh, against um, Will Zalatoris, who is a familiar face in majors. He came up just short. Um, so they went to a playoff, which was the first playoff in a PGA Championship, I think, in like almost it was around eight or eight was it eight years. It was eight, either eight years or it was over a decade since we've seen a playoff in the PGA Championship. And it was been actually, I think it was. Uh, I think it was over a decade since we've seen a playoff in the PGA Championship, and it's been eight years since we've seen a playoff in a major, just in general. So uh, that was it's a you know three-hole aggregate, and Justin Thomas ended up birdieing the first and second holes, and he, all he had to do was make par on the last to beat Zalatoris, and he did. So really a great you know performance by Justin Thomas, had a heck of a shot on that second playoff hole. I was able to get it on the green in one shot on the you know he was able to cut it really nicely, hit a really good fade on one of those shorter par fours. So he was able to two putt for birdie and got the advantage, and then he just on the 18th hole he was so dialed in played it perfectly with that ridge the iron shots i mean even to get to where he was he shot you know 67 on you know round one round two and round four so shot three under all three of those days it was really just round three that got away from him a little bit but he made some heck he made some great shots uh, was beautiful with his iron shots on the 18th was able to play the hole pretty much perfectly and uh, he ended up raising the watermaker trophy for the second time in his career second pga tour or second pga championship win which he joins you know dave stockton as the or he, at least in that company of the first player to win his first two majors at the pga championship since Dave Stockton did it back in the 70s so cool stuff for JT especially with the way that he did it yeah it was certainly an amazing performance by Justin Thomas to come from behind and get the win at the PGA championship and it just goes to show that you can't ever give in and can't ever give up you have to keep on fighting and doing your best because never what's going to happen you know certainly his odds to win weren't very good coming to that final day but he did the best he could shot 67 and ended up being enough to get to a playoff with Will Zalatoris and then ultimately win it in that three-hole aggregate and so that was really awesome to see for him uh, like you said Will Zalatoris finished as the runner-up after losing in the playoff against Justin Thomas and I think that's like the second or third time that Zalatoris has been a runner-up in a major in his career in his young career and he's essentially another top five finish for Zalatoris in a major. He's talking about how it's difficult to win a major uh, championship, uh, but Zalatoris has been in, you know, in, in, in the running and he's been in a lot of them in his short career. And he certainly, you know, afterwards had optimism that, you know, he's been right there and it's going to happen eventually for him. And you certainly feel that way with how well he's played. And one of these days he's going to be able to come out on top in a major um, so it was really a terrific uh, last day. Uh, and ultimately, the, a big storyline, obviously, coming away from the tournament was Amito Pereira uh, coming up short. Uh, he was so terrific throughout the entire weekend. Uh, he was, uh, you know, I think he was one back of Zalatoris going into the weekend. Uh, Zalatoris was the 36-hole uh, leader. And I think the 36-hole leader had won every single time at Southern Hills uh, Country Club. And every single time he had ever had a tournament there, the 36-hole leader ended up being the one who went on to win it. So that was actually an interesting stat that didn't come to fruition this time as Zalatoris was not able to get it done as he came up just short. But Mito Pereira was terrific all weekend long, uh, You know, shot under par in each of the first three rounds and was leading for a good amount of that final round 
but really struggled in the final round. I ended up shooting five over on Sunday, and the biggest, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem was really that that final hole for Pereira, where his uh, tee shot went in the water. He ended up, you know, having a, a double bogey on that hole, which not only you know took him out of the lead, but also eliminated him from actually being involved in the playoff with Thomas and Zalatoris. So we really felt bad for Pereira because he played so well, and he certainly felt like he was going to have an opportunity to win it. He led for most of the, that final day, but again struggled for the most part. And that double bogey on that final hole was what did him in and actually just took him out of contention to even win it at the end. So he finished tied for third along with Cameron Young and Tommy. And, uh, actually, no, just uh, yeah, Cameron Young and uh, Mito Pereira were the uh, two guys who tied for third at four under uh, behind Thomas and Salatoris, who were each five under going into the playoff. And then, like you said, Thomas got the win. And so we just really felt bad for Pereira. He played really well and just unfortunately came up short and, you know, just didn't, he just messed up on that final hole. And that obviously was the problem. Yeah, he was nine under coming into the final day. He was a clubhouse leader by three strokes, uh, the 54-hole leader, you know, by three strokes coming into Sunday. But it's a guy who's a, never won on the PGA Tour before, was trying to become the first Chilean to win a major championship. And uh, that was really the, the, the biggest theme coming into Sunday was Justin Thomas uh, was, you know, he was two under par. So, I mean, you know, as the round went on, but even coming into it, like a lot of the golfers, like you mentioned Cameron Young tying with Mito Pereira for the third, Lozal Torres, so I don't think he's won on the PGA Tour yet. So a bunch of guys up here, Matthew Fitzpatrick uh, was also in contention there. Didn't have a very good Sunday. He finished tied for fifth with uh, Tommy Fleetwood and Chris Kirk at three under par. He shot a three over 73 on the fourth in the uh, final round. So a lot of those guys that were up on the leaderboard never won on the PGA Tour before. And you have Justin Thomas, who's won a number of times uh, on, on tour before. And so it was kind of like, and, and at the end of the day, the veteran ended up rising to the top and being able to handle the pressure and find a way to get it done. And that was the biggest thing, as you mentioned. I felt bad for Mito Pereira because he was so good all weekend long. Wasn't expected to be even in contention. Um, and then shoots a 75 on the final round. Goes five over and ends up, ends up you know, double bogeying that last hole, which, you know, hit it in the water, which his swing was just like so off on that hole. Uh, which is what wasn't really what we were expecting. And, you know, he obviously was upset about it afterwards. I think I read some stuff where he was just, you know, he said he was nervous all weekend, but especially coming into Sunday, he was just really nervous. I mean, for a guy who's never been in that position before coming into a Sunday, you can imagine how nervous he was, the nerves and trying to control that. And obviously he didn't have his best round. And at the end of the day, I feel like he still missed a couple of, you know, putts that were like, he barely missed him. And so even then he was in a position where like a couple of those would have just gone in. He would have been okay. And again, going from having the one stroke lead going into the final hole and then making a double bogey and then all of a sudden just losing just like that and having to watch Thomas and Zalatoris in a playoff was uh, was unfortunate for him. But, you know, we'll see how he, he seems like a you know a guy who could be, you know, emerging. Certainly a guy who finishes top three in a major. You, would say, you want to keep your eyes on that moving forward. But it's unfortunate that he couldn't get it done. Cameron Young also was a guy who just kind of made some mistakes down the stretch in that round, ended up finishing with a one over 71. And he was again tied for a third with Pereira. And then looking down the rest of the leaderboard, you know, Tommy Fleetwood made a good surge on the, over the weekend was four over four under rather over the weekend and was able to get to a tie for fifth. Like I said, with Chris Kirk who shot two under on the final day, Matthew Fitzpatrick, who again, like I said, he was right there in contention too at six under. I think he was tied for second going into Sunday, but then again, had a three over 73 on the final day um, to finish a tie for fifth. Fifth. I, my guy, my pick, Rory McIlroy, you know, he had a great start, obviously. You know, he was five under to hold the 18-hole lead after Thursday, uh, 65 on the first day, so that was really cool to see. He was, he actually had the morning tee time and then was able to go in the afternoon, but he wasn't able to take advantage of the lack of win in the afternoon on Friday as he was one over 71. Then he shot a four over 74. Round three was burned by the par threes. He was able to play pretty good on Sunday, shot a two under 68 and ended up finishing eighth. So another top 10 at a major for Rory McIlroy, but was just not good enough on Friday 
Friday or Saturday. And, and he was a guy who I felt like he gave himself some opportunities to make birdies and just the putts just weren't dropping for him. And he was really striking the ball well all weekend long and just unable to do enough. And then uh, I can I can let you finish out the rest of the leaderboard. Yeah, uh, just to finish out the top 10, obviously we're not going to go any further than that. But we had Brennan Steele, who was uh, who finished tied for ninth, along with Tom Hoagie, Abraham Anser, and Seamus Power. All those four guys tied for ninth uh, at the PGA Championship. Brennan Steele shot three under over the weekend to get himself to finish at one under. Uh, Tom Hoagie, you know, started off good with a four under and the four under 66 in that first round. But then, you know... Wasn't able to be nearly as good after that. Pretty much, he only shot one under uh, for the, actually actually shot three over for the rest of the weekend after that. Obviously, because he finished it one under. Uh, and then Abraham Answer, you know, he came into he had a pretty good weekend. You know, he came or uh, Thursday and Friday were good for him. He was four under going into the weekend, and certainly was a guy who was in contention. But you know, shot even par seventy on the third day, uh, but on, on the Sunday on the final day, I think some of the pressure got to him too. Wasn't able to do very well. Shot three over on Sunday to finish tied for ninth at one under. And then Seamus Power, uh, you know, shot two over uh, there on Sunday. And so he came into the final day uh, three under and certainly in contention as well, but then shot two over on that final day and finished tied for ninth at minus one under uh, for the weekend. And so, yeah, it was a great tournament for the most part. It was really difficult conditions, like you said, for those guys who had to tee off on Thursday afternoon and then subsequently Friday morning. Those guys really, you know, had the tough had the tough luck on the draw there because the wind was not good in the afternoon on Thursday or on Friday morning and so those guys really struggled one of those guys being Scotty Scheffler who was my pick to win the PGA Championship and who was you know tied with John Rahm as uh, one of the favorites for this tournament after he won the Masters and was doing so well coming into this tournament but he uh, dealt with that him and John Rahm were in the same group actually uh, teeing off on Thursday afternoon and Friday morning and they both struggled Uh, I think John Rahm made the cut but Scotty Scheffler actually missed the cut at the tournament and that was his first time he's missed the cut in a tournament since last October and so that was really difficult for me to pick him. I just felt like I have terrible luck with whoever I picked because even when I picked the guy who was uh, tied with uh, John Rahm as one of the as the favorite for this tournament, even he somehow managed to miss the cut in this tournament, which was uh, difficult for me because I'm like, you know, come on, I thought for sure he could finish in the top ten, but like you said, like I said, didn't even make the cut, so didn't even play on the weekend. But uh, despite that. You know, it was still just a really fun tournament to watch. Like you mentioned, we watched a lot of it. We watched uh, more of this tournament than we have all year because we actually had time to watch a good amount of it on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And of course, it was on ESPN on Thursday and Friday, so you could watch a good amount of it if you wanted to. And uh, the conditions were tough. We saw a number of guys, you know, I feel like everybody was heading to get up and down. I mean, there was a lot of guys who landed in bunkers. It was just a really tough course. Obviously, you know, you know, uh, Justin Thomas, you know, won. Him and Sal Torres were only five under, so it wasn't like super low numbers. Um, and so, but a lot of guys guys were landing in bunkers. I felt like everybody was good, had to get up and down over and over again, but it was really fun to watch. And really, it was fun to watch the guys have, you know, a real good challenge out there. You want to see the best players challenged and have to deal with the conditions and deal with the tough course. And it certainly played difficult for these guys, but it was a lot of fun to watch and we certainly enjoyed it. And certainly, you know, congratulations to Justin Thomas winning his second major. And of course, the second time he's won at the PGA championship. Yeah, and he was one of the guys that was able to overcome that uh, the tough draw. He had to tee off in the after or in the uh, in the afternoon on on Thursday and still shot a three under sixty seven. Then he had to tee off the next morning and with the wind again being a factor, shot a three under sixty seven. So it didn't affect him too much. He was able to make it happen. And you mentioned the course, super tough. A lot of guys were struggling with the bunkers early on. Uh, they, they were talking about how the sand was different, so they weren't hitting the bunker shots as well as they probably expected to. Um, and the course was playing really long. I mean, we knew coming into it was a really long course. The par threes were like ridiculous. I mean, 
we're talking like 200 yard par par threes, like like 220 yard par threes. I think for the most part, they had to really go deep with those. And so you just imagine it was a really difficult course. That's why we didn't see super low numbers. And that's why we saw, you know, again, like you mentioned, you know, Justin Thomas and, and Will's outdoors being tied. And then of course, Thomas taking it in the playoff, but five under, I remember saying Sunday morning that, you know, my pick was, of course, Rory McIlroy, and he was in a position. He made three birdies on to, to start his day on Sunday, or at least a whole second. His holes two, three, and four he made birdie on, and all of a sudden he was kind of making a surge up the leaderboard a little bit, and he was three under. And I was thinking, yeah, well, he's making a good surge early on, and we'll see what happens. But there's, I mean, those guys at the top of the leaderboard are nine under, you know, Mito, Pereira, and the other guys are like six under him. They're going to have to shoot over par for him to have a chance, and I don't think that's going to happen. And then, sure enough, a couple hours later, they do shoot over par, and all of a sudden the winning number is five under. And if Rory McIlroy could have made a couple more birdies, he could have had an opportunity opportunity actually to to find himself in a similar a similar position as Justin Thomas ended up taking advantage of those opportunities and and you know maybe catching some good breaks and obviously playing really well uh, down the stretch and just you know dialed in making the shots when he had to again the 18th hole he played perfectly twice and it was really cool to see and yeah, I remember, I remember, one of the other quotes that I had that I wanted to mention was that he was saying like, this is what I put all the work in for. This is what I, you know, prepare so hard for to be in that position to execute that shot with the gallery back there. And so obviously, like I mentioned, he was talking about how it's you know really tough to win a major and, uh, and he hasn't, you know, won a lot necessarily. I don't feel like lately. And again, only a second major, but he obviously one of the better golfers and for, for him this week and it all came around and all, it all came together for him to be able to hoist uh, the Wanamaker trophy the second time in his career. And again, like you said, congratulations to him. It was an impressive performance down the stretch and an outstanding comeback to be able to get to the a playoff and then execute the way needed to down the stretch. Yeah, and then one more thing I wanted to add on was you talked about, you know, Mito Pereira and Matt Fitzpatrick being two guys who had never won in the PGA Tour before, you know, playing. And, and they were the two guys who were playing in that final group, you know, on, on Sunday and just shows the pressure that these guys are under and how nervous they can be and how difficult it is to win in the major uh, championship. But also just in general, when you have that lead on Sunday and you're trying to hold off everybody else, it can be, you know, nerve wracking. And that's why, you know, we saw Pereira and Fitzpatrick both shot over par. Pereira, like you said, shot five over on Sunday. Fitzpatrick shot three over. Those two guys, you know, really weren't able to overcome the pressure and weren't able to play that well on Sunday, you know, even though they were in that final grouping. And so it just goes to show how difficult it is, but, you know, certainly hope those guys will learn from it. And I'm sure they will learn from that. And, you know, now that you've been in that position before the next time that either of those guys are in that position, they should, you know, you would hope be able to handle it better. And it's a good experience for those guys. And like, so there were a number of guys in that final day who were coming into it who had never won on the PGA tour and certainly had never won a major championship before. And so it was exciting to see all those guys, uh, you know, kind of jousting for whoever was going to get it done. And then in the end, it ends up being Thomas who had won before. And just like I said, continued to fight, you know, even though he was down, certainly went out there, did his best, you know, and just try to shoot a low number and see what can happen. And at the end of the day, that's it, it paid off for him as those guys above him shot over par and he was able to make it happen in the end. So it's really a fun tournament to watch. And, you know, we'll be looking forward to the next uh, major at the U S open in June. Yeah, and then lastly, you mentioned all those. Uh, last thing I will say on this, you mentioned all the the names we were expecting to see at the top of the leaderboard coming into Sunday. Some of the guys who never won on the PGA Tour before, you know, with that being the case, that means a lot of guys that we were expecting big name golfers to be up there weren't there. And so you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Scotty Scheffler missing the cut, which is tough. Um, it just didn't. It was one of his. You quoted saying it's one of his favorite courses, or if not the his favorite course ever, and uh, and then just didn't work out for him. Uh, you know, I think both of his rounds, round and round one and round two, I think both of those, you know final few holes he made some bogeys and just couldn't minimize mistakes and just you know ended up kind of just falling out of contention all of a sudden and all of a sudden you're like wow you know the number one player in the world misses the cut 
And that was a you know pretty uh, that was a very elite grouping that they had with with Scotty Scheffler and Colin Morikawa and um, you know John Rom the top three players in the world and you know John Rom ends up going six over in the tournament Colin Morikawa shot eight over in the tournament so none of those guys really played that well and they didn't handle the win I guess necessarily as well as they wanted to of course the latter two made the cut but still they didn't play that well in, in the tournament and you know Jordan Spieth was in that pairing with Rory McIlroy and he kind of struggled in this one I know he I'm pretty sure he was over par uh, in this tournament not by a month not by much um, certainly this was the last you know of the, of the his last leg of the grand slam for him to complete unable to get it done this time so he wasn't able to you know play as well as he would have wanted to I'm trying to see where he's out on this leaderboard i can't really find it right now but it's probably not that important uh, dustin johnson struggled as well so team taylor may didn't play you know didn't perform that well necessarily good to see rory mcelroy in the top 10 is my pick and of course uh, tommy fleetwood a, a team taylor may guy who was actually the highest uh, team taylor may performer there he played well down the stretch and then we have to mention lastly i know this is usually probably one, of, one of the more headlines but tiger woods did make the cut at southern hills which was cool to see i think in this tournament more so than the masters you could see that his leg was really bothering him he wasn't fully healthy uh, it was a grind for him out there so he actually withdrew from the last round he shot at 79 on on Saturday which was I think his third worst round in the major and fifth worst all time for him so a nine over 79 of course he was way out of contention at that point his leg was just too much to bear and so he withdrew on that final day and now we'll see when we see him again I'm sure he'll try to you know prepare and be ready to go for the U.S. Open in the middle of June but if he doesn't end up competing in that third major I know he definitely uh, wants to play at the Open Championship at you know St. Andrews in the middle of July out there in Europe, which I think I've heard that he said is his favorite course in the world. So I'm sure he will definitely want to be prepared and ready to go for that one, that last major of the season in July, but it was a credit to him. He shot a 69 on Friday, a one under par to make the cut, uh, which was impressive still with everything he's going through. Good to see him out there. And uh, I think it was a wise decision to go ahead and call it a day before Sunday because he was just not going to be able to do it. Uh, the weather wasn't very good Saturday morning whenever he was playing, which I think factored into it as well. So good good, good decision to go ahead and call it a week and uh, hopefully he'll be healthier as we move forward. So really good PGA championship though. Like you, you said, we watched a lot of it. It was a lot of fun to watch. It was challenging. It was competitive. Well, it was definitely a lot of different storylines coming out of it. And at the end of the day, Justin Thomas ends up becoming the 2022 PGA champion. So that's all we have for the PGA Tour. They are going to be at Colonial Country Club uh, with the Charles Schwab Challenge over there in Fort Worth this week, which is a, a pretty good golf course. has been around for, I mean, it's been a, on the tour. This this event itself has been on the tour for quite some time and it's still a very good field. I think six of the top 10 golfers in the world are going to be there. Justin Thomas not taking a week off. He'll be there. And, and so there'll be still be a lot of uh, good things, a lot of good things to look forward to this weekend. Should be some really good golf up there in Fort Worth. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun for sure. We saw Jason Kokrak win this uh, tournament last year. And I remember this being a tournament that kind of like maybe kind of got us into golf a little bit more back during the pandemic whenever they started again. You know, like we know that golf was one of the sports that, you know, was able to get going sooner than other sports because they were able to be somewhat distanced and they were able to kind of uh, do better around the pandemic. And so I remember us watching the Charles Schwab Challenge uh, back in 2020 when I think it was Colin Morikawa and Daniel Berger who had that playoff hole. I think it was Berger who came out on top that day and so you know it's kind of one of those ones I mean I think I we used to watch golf every once in a while I used to watch it from time to time I certainly would watch when the majors came around because I wanted to see who won but I didn't usually watch on a weekly basis I still don't watch that much on a weekly basis necessarily but I do watch more than I used to I think this was one of those tournaments that kind of got me into it a little bit more and got me more excited to watch golf especially because at this time again golf was one of those first sports that came back and so we didn't really have a lot of other stuff happening and I wanted to watch some sports and so golf was here we had the PGA Tour and 
this was one of those first uh, tournaments that they went to when they got things uh, up and going again, and I certainly enjoyed watching it. Then I'm going to enjoy watching it again this weekend when I am able to swing around and watch it over Saturday and Sunday a little bit, and it should be a lot of fun to see what happens over there in Fort Worth, Texas. We have a lot of big names, you know, playing it. And again, I mean, we always do, and there's a lot of guys, you know, who are from Texas who are, you know, this is one of those courses they want to win at, like Scotty Sheffer, like Jordan Spieth, and some other guys as well who, you know, want to win here in their home state. And so we'll see what happens. Yeah, definitely. I'm, if there's one good thing that came out of the pandemic, it was the fact that you were like, we should buy it. We, we could watch some golf. And I, and I was like, yeah, I might as well. You know, I don't have a problem with golf. Maybe I can learn some more. And then now we are uh, good golf fans. We're not like elite. We're not going to, we don't, we're not like crazed golf fans. Like you said, we don't watch every weekend and, and all that. But I do you know, definitely enjoy the game of golf. I like playing when I get the chance to. I've really, I think my love for the game of golf is just getting more and more. I just gets, I think it gets, you know, increases daily almost to some extent, at least weekly. I, I just, I love the game of golf. And when I get the chance to play it and watch, I think there's so many great things that come from the game of golf, from kind of the translation from golf to a life standpoint as well. It's just, it's a really great game, uh, and I'm glad that you know you kind of pushed it on. You, you kind of promoted it a little bit more. We're kind of like you know the initiator with that, and we that was like one of the first golf tournaments we really got into back in 2020. And from there, now we we can talk about the golf on the podcast. I, I really enjoy watching it and playing it. And so if there was one good thing that came out of that, I, I'm thankful for for, the, for golf, and, and and I'm looking forward to watching this one a little bit this weekend and seeing who comes out on top. So. Uh, that's pretty much all we have for the. That's definitely all we have for the PGA Tour. I think we talked about that more than we thought. Uh, I keep saying that all the time now. Every every segment lasts longer than we expected it to, but we didn't want to short ourselves. There were a lot of storylines, and we we watched a lot of it. So it was almost like by default we were going to have a lot to talk about because it was a lot of fun to watch uh, the PGA Championship and Justin Thomas end up winning it in a playoff over Will Zalatoris. And now we'll see what happens at the Charles Schwab Challenge this weekend. So it's time to double dupe now. We'll finish up briefly with uh, just talking about Texas A&M athletics a little bit. Um, of course, we've been talking about Texas A&M athletics for the last couple of weeks now. It's kind of just become something we talk about in the double dupe segment because we don't really have anything else to mention there necessarily. We just wanted to shout out our Aggies, you know, what they're doing uh, here down the stretch in the postseason. Some of these spring sports that are kind of coming to a conclusion. Uh, we saw softball. Their season ended there at the Norman Regional, which I think we talked about last week a little bit. Not ending, but the fact that they were going to be, you know, in the college, you know, in the in the, in the postseason and at that Norman, in the, Nor- the Norman Regional rather, with, of course, the, the number one overall seed at Oklahoma Sooners who ended up just destroying our Aggies on Sunday uh, to, to end our season. But it was really cool to see Saturday night. We were down 62 against Minnesota. We were, to, we were able to put together a heck of a comeback, a six-run, six-inning cap by a two-run homer by Katie Dack. And then we ended up scoring eight runs in those last two innings. Ended up winning 10-7. to seven, And that was actually the 13th, uh, excuse me, the 13, uh, excuse me, I was going to say 1,300. Like it's easier to say 1,300th win in the career of Joe Evans, uh, you know, head coach for softball at AM for 26 years. That was our 1,300th, God dang, 13 hundredth career win. <laughs> I say, it's a long episode. I can't talk anymore. 1300th career win for Joe Evans, which was really cool. And I don't think I realized it until afterwards. I'm glad we came back and won that game. Yeah, it was definitely a, a big deal. I mean, obviously, 1300, <laughs> 1300 is, is a huge milestone. And uh, like you said, she was here for 26 years as the head coach of our softball team. And getting to that milestone was huge. And she's, you know, top 10 all time in Division One softball for wins. I think she was already top 10, but now I think she's like tied for ninth or something. So, I mean, yeah. it's just really awesome that she was able to, that, that win got her to that milestone. Because as you mentioned earlier, uh, Texas A&M, at least right now, isn't intending on bringing her back as our head coach. And so, so we'll see if she ends up coaching somewhere else. Uh, but if she does it, it's awesome that she was able to, to, able to get that 13th, 1300th career win uh, over the weekend. 
Yeah, definitely. You know, that staved off elimination, gave us one more day to play, which didn't go well the next day, but still really cool for Joe Evans. And doesn't sound like you said, uh, doesn't sound like we're going to renew her contract. So her tenure as head coach of softball is likely over. I never watched softball that much, but I obviously got I got a chance to co- cover a couple of softball beats with the battalion. So I was able to gain a little bit of connection with that. So it was cool to be a part of, you know, a couple of games there and then watch the postseason run a little bit and, and be able to see that, you know, 1300th career win for Joe Evans and wish her all the best moving forward ever her career you know, obviously really thankful and appreciative for what she did for the university and for the softball program for a quarter of a century wish her all the best moving forward moving forward with, with whatever else uh, she has going for now and so uh, and then that so that kind of wraps up softball that's in the books now we can turn our attention to women's golf for a moment, uh, which just made a historic run at the NCAA championships down uh, in Arizona, which and just ended tonight uh, with uh, Stanford, actually the, the number one overall seed in the uh, NCAA championships uh, for there for women's golf ended up winning uh, in the match play over number two, Oregon three to two. And so that was their That was actually the first time uh, that the number one seed in women's golf ended up winning the uh, tournament or winning the, the NCAA championship since it turned into match play back in 2015. And yeah, we were uh, watching yesterday as our Aggies ended up losing to Oregon in the semifinals. But still, that was the longest run the Aggies have ever made uh, in the NCAA championships before uh, being becoming a semifinalist was amazing to see. Uh, it was just you know this team has turned around so much last year. I mean, I didn't really watch women's golf that much, but again, I got a chance to work some of those beats. So it was cool. I, I know some of the, the girls on the team from not personally, but getting a chance to cover them. So I'm rooting for them and uh, looking forward to what they were going to do. They you know, were able to do what they needed to do regionals and then get to the NCAA championship and play really well over the weekend with stroke play and the match play, getting a chance to, to be a part of that, beat Florida State in the morning, lose to Oregon in the afternoon, but still, uh, Garrett Chadwell, the head coach in his first season, turns the program around, brings us all the way to the Final Four, really cool stuff, really happy for those girls, really proud for what they did, representing the university and really excited for the, the future is bright for that program. Yeah, definitely really exciting stuff for women's golf here at Texas A&M. And like you said, they did a terrific job this season, really turning it around. Because I know you mentioned the last year they finished 90th, I believe it was, is what you said. And then this year, getting into the semifinals of the NCAA championships is obviously a really big accomplishment. And so even though they came up short, there's still so much to be thankful, so, so much to be happy about and proud of them. You know, certainly he said it yesterday, uh, Coach Chadwell said yesterday when they interviewed him, that certainly they were really proud of what they had done, even though they came up short. And they certainly were going to hold their heads up high because they did great things throughout the entire season and especially here in the NCAA championships so it was really awesome to see them competing in the final four there against Oregon and yeah they came up short but they still did amazing things for for the university and, and reaching and going places that they'd never been before and so that was awesome and now you know it gives us uh, great optimism for the future for that program. Yeah, it was great to be able to watch a little bit of it, too, because, I mean, I didn't, you know, college golf, obviously, it's really hard to, to broadcast, you know, golf, you know, a bunch of people have to be all over the place, cameras all over the place as well, and so they don't, you don't get to watch college golf really that much, And but in a position like this, it's on the golf channel, you get a chance to, to watch that and see those girls out there and competing, which is cool to see, and they're so, they played so well and so talented and did a lot of great things and came up short, but really cool to watch, and uh, again, the future is bright for that program, and looking forward to seeing how they progress moving forward, and just really, really proud of that group, and and that kind of translates us or it kind of transitions us to the men's golf team, which is going to be competing in the same, uh, you know, in the same course there at Greyhawk uh, over there in Arizona. And the men's team is uh, going to be starting tomorrow or not tomorrow. I beg your pardon. Friday through Wednesday is, you know, is at least, you know, they might not make it all the way to the end, but uh, the men's team is playing in the NCAA championship as well. They finished uh, third in the regional, I believe here in Bryan to get a chance to go to the NCAA championships, which is really cool. And they're really excited about it. The opportunity to be a part of that. 
Uh, they're about as good as the women's golf team, I think, for the most part. So they're still, you know, hopefully they can play just as well and get a chance to go in the match play. I believe the format's probably going to be the same. You got four days of stroke play, and you got to play well to kind of, you know, survive in advance and get out of the, the match play, which would be really fun to watch. So I'm going to try to watch as much as I can and whenever it's on the golf channel. I'm looking forward to seeing what the men's team can do uh, this weekend. Yeah, it definitely should be a lot of fun to see what happens. As you mentioned, uh, you know, like he's, I mean, I, you you know more about Texas A&M athletics than I do because you were working for the battalion and got to cover some golf for the men's golf and for the women's golf, and then you did some other stuff too. And so you know more than I do, but I certainly take your word for it that they're about as good as the women's team, and we'll, so we'll see what they're able to do. But it's just great to see them there. I think we were watching the uh, women's golf, the NCAA championships over on the Golf Channel, and they showed a uh, they showed a graphic that there's only like I think there's only like 12 colleges and universities. Uh, that had both their women's and men's teams in, at the NCAA championships. And Texas A&M obviously was one of those uh, 12 universities that had both their men's and women's teams at the at the NCAA championships. So it's a big deal. You know, it's obviously really awesome to see that, uh, you know, to be a group of, to be part of a group of 12 there. I think it was to have both teams there. And so, yeah, the women's golf team came up short, but they still finished, you know, in that final four. And like you said, I think you showed me a picture where they got, they did get a trophy for that accomplishment because they still got really far and finished higher than a lot of teams did and so uh, that was great for them and now we'll see what the men's what the men's team is able to do here over the course of Friday through Wednesday it's a, it's a grind certainly that's another thing too I mean I guess I never really you know watched the NCAA championships but certainly it's over the course of you know almost a you know number of days where they're going to be you know participating here and it's like over the course of six days at least for the men's I think for the women's it was the same thing you know so if you are going to win the whole thing you have to just play every single day and there's just a, a real grind for these uh, for these offers but it was great to see the women get as far as they did getting all the way to yesterday and coming up short and we'll hopefully and we hope that the men's golf team is able to do just as well if not better yeah so the men's team was actually out there yesterday supporting the women's team which is cool to see uh, aggie supporting aggies it's obviously a big deal we're a tight-knit group for sure and so that was really special to see them all take a picture together afterwards and yeah certainly you know they play four rounds of stroke play i mean i think you have to finish in the top 15 after three rounds of stroke play and then you have to finish in the top eight on that last day of stroke play and then you get a chance to be a match play so you're gonna play a bunch of golf if you're gonna have success the women's team really grinded out and played a bunch of holes out there and certainly hope the men's team can do the same and the last thing we'll mention is aggie baseball which is the biggest headline i think for for us at least and for for all of you know aggie land this moment in time probably they're drawing the headlines because they won the sec west for the first time since we joined the sec a, you know a decade ago which was really cool to see this was a team that was not picked to finish 13th in the sec first year with jim schlossnango as the head coach we go on to win the sec west with a 19 and 11 record we won it outright won seven consecutive series in the sec to get the chance to be in that position and able to win uh, the series against Ole Miss over the weekend which gave us uh, the win in the sec West gave us the number two seed in the SEC tournament in Hoover, which is happening right now. Actually delayed. You showed me earlier that the game was supposed to be playing right now. We were going to try to get done as soon as possible so we could watch as much as we could, but then the game gets postponed due to weather, but um, was the, like I said, first time we've won the SEC West in school history. I think it was the first time since the you know division format, or at least uh, it's the first time since there have been seven teams in each division. So first time since expansion in the SEC that a team has gone from worst to first. So I mean, just the Aggie baseball team has overachieved this year and done way more than anybody expected them to. They're number five in the country. The expectations are super high now, and we're really looking forward to seeing what they do in the SEC tournament this weekend and then postseason after that. Hoping that we get an opportunity, like I think most people will think we do deserve the opportunity to host uh, one of those regionals. Uh, coming up uh, not this coming weekend obviously but the weekend after that 
Yeah, I certainly just can't say enough good things about what Jim Schlossnagel has done for that and what the Aggie baseball team has done this season. Obviously, he's been a big part of that. His pedigree uh, speaks for itself, and it was great that the Aggies brought him in here to be our head coach, and he came over here and has made an immediate impact well, along with all the players that we have this season. That you know, There's been a lot of turnover, I think, for the most part, but the guys just continue to play really well. And as we talked about on the podcast recently, they didn't start off great necessarily, but they just continue to battle and continue to get better as a team over the course of the season to the point where they just continue to play so well down the stretch like you said winning seven consecutive series and being the SEC West champs is just a huge accomplishment something that nobody expected coming into this season and so it's so great that that happened and now like you said we're the two seed in the SEC tournament behind Tennessee who's one of the best teams I think probably the best team in college baseball but certainly we're really excited to see what happens here at the SEC tournament and then like you said in the postseason going forward and if we host regional that would be really awesome too and so we'll see what happens going forward but uh, like you said the game was supposed to be this afternoon like around four 30 you told me that we were supposed to get started around 4 30 but then uh, that was beca- but then that didn't happen because the very first game that was supposed to happen today was supposed to happen at like 9 30 in the morning which is really which is really early in the morning but they have to get them started because they're all playing at the same ballpark and so they were supposed to get that first game started early in the morning but then some there was a weather delay for like three hours that first game didn't get started until like 12 45 uh, in the afternoon and so then the second game didn't get started until this afternoon when we were supposed to have our game and so they were going to push our game back to tonight but then now there's more weather delay there's more rain and so now our game got postponed to tomorrow morning and we'll be like the first game playing tomorrow at like 9 30 in the morning so now we're gonna have to play early and if we want to watch which i think we will we'll have to get up early to see that thing in action which i think it'll be fine but uh and we'll see what happens going forward i'm not really sure how these uh, how the weather delays are going to make things how are going how it's going to affect the overall tournament because they got to keep this thing going but i'm sure they'll figure it out and we'll see what happens we're hoping the best for the aggies here in the sec tournament and then we'll see what what is able to happen going forward after that yeah, we were going to, you know, it was supposed to be this afternoon, so we knew we were going to record the podcast in the evening, which we currently are still, but we heard out the, found out the game was going to be pushed back, so like we, we almost didn't want to record because we wanted to watch the game, um, but we're like, we'll just, you know, record, and we might miss the first couple of innings, that's okay, and then we found out the game was actually going to be postponed, so we're not going to miss any of it, and so that's cool, at least, that we're not missing any of it, but at the same time, now we got to get up a little bit earlier, at least for our standards, a little bit earlier than normal to watch tomorrow morning, and I will get up and watch because I'm looking forward to seeing this team. I haven't got a chance to watch them a bunch on you know TV this year. We had a lot of games on SEC Network Plus. I don't have that, so I didn't get a chance to watch that many games on TV. Obviously, I went co- covered a couple of games in person, which was fun to watch. I've kept up with the, the team you know, really throughout the entire season, definitely through SEC play, watching highlights and reading about uh, the game scripts and all of that, and uh, game recaps and watching the highlights and all that. So it's been, it's going to be really fun to watch uh, the games actually happening live. So And definitely there's a lot of optimism and the expectations are high, and uh, Tennessee's obviously the best team in the SEC, but who knows? We, we saw Tennessee and A&M in the SEC turn uh, championship in basketball when it was all said and done that tournament we might see it again here in baseball certainly hope that ends up coming down to that and I think the Aggies have won the SEC championship once since we joined the SEC and so if we make it twice this year that would be really quite um, definitely would be outstanding and so memorable and looking forward to so much going forward with that program and Obviously, the future is bright, but currently, the future, the future not even the future, just the current present is, uh, and the expectations are super high and looking forward to it. So that's all we have for Texas A&M Athletics. Uh, again, why not one more time? Talked about more than we probably thought we were going to, but that's all we have now. We'll go ahead and conclude on an episode that definitely lasted longer than we expected, but at this point, it is what it is. I mean, we I know I feel like we were a little repetitive at times and maybe a little sloppy. We kind of grinded through it a little bit, and uh, I mean, you guys know this, is, this podcast is ad-lib. You know, we don't really, we do a little bit of prep, but at the end of the day, it's all, you know, we have like, 
like notes written down and stuff like that. But a lot of what we say, we don't plan. And so I think that kind of lends itself to be a little bit more repetitive at times. But uh, we get our points across, even if it's not always succinct. Uh, it is what it is. And I'll let you conclude before you bring it back to me. Yeah, I think we did pretty good for the most part, though, even though it was a little bit lengthy. But I think you kind of almost jinxed it a little bit. You just can't say at the beginning of the episode that you think it's going to be a shorter episode because, I mean, even though it's going to be shorter a little bit than the other than these past couple episodes, um, you know, it's just like I think you, we came into it with an expectation it's going to be shorter than this, but maybe you jinxed it a little bit by saying early on that you thought it was going to be shorter because we've seen in the past that whenever we say things like that, it doesn't usually happen for us. But at the same time, I think we've done well. And you said you thought we were a little bit repetitive. I'm not... Maybe a little bit, but I thought I think we've done pretty well for the most part over the course of this episode. I, I, I like the way it's come out and all the things we've been able to discuss throughout the course of this episode. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking like uh, maybe it was longer than expected because we didn't have any football content. We kind of you know, maybe you know, convinced ourselves that it was going to be shorter than normal, even though we still have like a handful of topics and we know we can, uh, can elaborate on all of those different topics. And then I think in our minds almost, we we kind of set ourselves up for, for failure in terms of trying to be a, a shorter episode because we know we, we don't have as much content. And so all the, we almost give ourselves more freedom to talk about as, these things as long as we want to. And then all of a sudden we're sitting here with our 90 plus minute episode. So it is what it is. If you guys aren't, aren't bothered by it, that's cool. If you are, you know, it is what it is. But at this point, we like what we do about it and we can just go ahead and finish. Yeah, definitely. But we also had like more MLB business than normal. And then we talked about the PGA Tour more than we normally do because we're recapping the PGA Championship. We usually don't recap tournaments that much, but because it was a major championship, obviously we're going to talk about it more so than we normally do. And so I think that's why it ended up being a little bit longer than maybe we thought it was going to be. But at any rate, that is going to be it for us here for this episode of the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. So thank you for listening to this episode. If you listen to the entire thing, we certainly appreciate that because, again, as we have stated, it has been another lengthy episode for us. Uh, but even if you listen to parts of it, we certainly appreciate that because, again, we always appreciate any listening that you give us. We certainly appreciate any amount of uh, time you spend listening to us talk about sports. Uh, please subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else listen to our podcast. We certainly appreciate it when you guys do that for us and also once again please follow us on social media you can follow me on twitter at doopy underscore austin and on instagram at au underscore doopy 10 and as tyler and, and of course tyler will plug his handles here in a little bit as well and you can follow him on his handles too so just like always as i let you all go and i you know talk one last time here on this episode i look forward to all the great things we have in sports of course the nba right now you know, right in the midst of the uh, Eastern Conference Finals and the Western Conference Finals. And by the time we record next week, we will be previewing the NBA Finals and getting ready to talk about the last two teams standing. And that should be really awesome. And so I'm looking forward to these series concluding and then seeing who is playing in the NBA Finals this season. Um, so that's exciting. And then, of course, the MLB with games every day. It constantly is rolling along and, we, and I enjoy every moment of it. Uh, just watching games, just keeping up with games every day and seeing how everything is going and uh, seeing great action every single day and every single night and so I look forward to that and then of course we have the Charles Schwab Challenge this weekend in Fort Worth uh, for the PGA Tour and I look forward to that again because it should be a fun tournament and I and I certainly will enjoy uh, enjoy what I'm able to watch from that tournament and then of course we talked about Aggie Athletics and we have the men's golf uh, getting things started on Friday and then going 
maybe hopefully through next Wednesday at the NCAA championships, but we'll see what happens with them uh, there in Arizona. And then of course we have the Aggie baseball team that we just talked about, which is very exciting uh, here over the, uh, here in the SEC tournament. And we look forward to the game tomorrow morning and then any other games they're able to play. Of course, it's double elimination. We're expecting, obviously we'll play at least two games and hopefully many more. And like you said, the expectations are high. And so we hope for the best and we'll be excited to watch uh, the Aggie baseball team in action here in Hoover here and at the SEC tournament here over the weekend. And so and we're here during the uh, rest of this week and then into the weekend. And so I look forward to all of that going forward and I look forward to seeing how all of it goes, how everything transpires. And then I uh, will look forward to speaking with you all again next week here on the Double Dupe Sports Podcast. Yeah, certainly a lot of great content to look forward to, and we, we, that's why we love sports. There's always, there's never a shortage of action, and certainly you just have to look around. You might have to dig deep every now and then, but certainly you just give it some effort. You can you can find yourself really enamored with some sp- with different sports and and just uh, rooting for people and, and getting excited about things that happen. So you mentioned all the great stuff we have moving forward with the NBA playoffs, and next week we'll be able to preview the NBA finals, and make our picks, and uh, for that, and kind of what storylines are going to be involved there, and all the action that's going to take place. You know, with uh, the, the you know the NBA finals. It's going to start next Thursday, June 2nd. We have the match uh, happening next Wednesday, June 1st. Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers against Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes out there in Las Vegas next Wednesday on TNT. So looking forward to previewing that a little bit. Uh, I don't know how much we're going to preview. Might make our picks and just talk about how we always look forward to the match. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it's always fun to watch that, that production. So we'll look ahead to that and preview that a little bit and get excited for that. That's happening next week. And of course, we get to recap all the great content you mentioned with, with Texas a Athletics, with the men's golf team, with Aggie Baseball, and kind of looking ahead to all the great things that, that are going on with those programs and what that has in store and again the PGA Tour never stops um, there's a lot of great con- there's a lot of great tournaments coming up uh, just over the summer here uh, in the PGA Tour to look forward to so we're going to have a lot of great PGA Tour talk moving forward here in the DDSP as we get closer to finishing up our time here on this podcast you know this was episode 10 of the season episode 92 overall so we still have you know you know two more months or so to go here with the DDSP we'll wrap up sometime in July but up until that point we still have a lot of great content to get to and so uh, lastly you can follow me on social media on Twitter and Instagram at tdup25 probably not going to post anything but we'll see I might post something about content we talked about it might be an informal manner but uh, certainly there's always a potential for that so follow us there if you don't already a lot of great content moving forward and next week we're going to have a lot of great content to recap and preview so looking forward to next week's episode uh, not already to some extent you know obviously it's nice to have you know these weekly episodes to get some time off in between episodes to kind of get our minds right and kind of pre- you know prepare MLB news and notes obviously and kind of how that's going but again next Tuesday and the, the episode will be out on Wednesday and so looking forward to all the great sports action moving forward and uh, I look forward to talking to you guys next week right here on the double dupe sports podcast